0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. If this is your first time checking out V Radio, you can go to my website, v-radio.us. Uh, there you will find links to my various social media accounts, along with places that you can check out my archives. I do a lot of content on YouTube, as well as in podcast format. Um, I usually put all of my podcasts on YouTube in some way, shape, or form, but I cannot actually put all of my videos on podcasts, in podcast format for good reason. So make sure you give both an opportunity, you know, check them out. And one of the reasons I also say to check out my website is that my uh, YouTube listeners in particular have been telling me that they don't always get notifications of my videos or they're finding themselves magically unsubscribed. So if you join my discord, which is not super chatty, it's just a place where I post all my links or I have telegram, I have Facebook and a lot of other ways that you can be notified when I put out new content. Um, I do have a Patreon, and it is my intention just to try to make myself whole from what I'm doing here. I have no interest in making any kind of large quantities of money. You can also donate via PayPal. Um, you can donate via Subscribestar. Um, and at this point, my, my job at this point is to put out good content that I would say appeals to both sides, meaning the right and the left, enough that even if you don't agree with me about everything I say, that you can at least gain some kind of benefit out of checking out my content. So regardless of what your political leanings are, I'm sure you'll find something you like on my YouTube channel um, or in my podcasts. So today my uh, guest is Jay Lee Quinn. Um, he's a uh, streamer that goes out and you know does like live reporting like I used to do back in the day. Um, he's done a lot of great work. And I think in particular, one of the reasons why He stands out to me is that he is somebody who says that he is openly left leaning um, yet finds himself um, very much like I do kind of reporting on, you know, things in the truth, you know, in the real. And unfortunately that sometimes makes the left look bad. Um, And he's not responding to the cancel culture. He's not responding to the threats. You know, you're not going to silence this guy. And it doesn't mean that if the right does something wrong, he's not going to be open to saying that too, obviously, but we're just kind of trying to get to the, the truth of the matter. We're in a stage right now in the United States where one of the biggest problems I would say with the polarization that is getting so out of control, it comes from the fact that everybody's lying. They're just constantly lying over and over and over again. And if that's the the atmosphere, then how can you trust anything anybody says? You know, well, if that's what's going on, how can we make, you know, civilized decisions as a society if we can't even you know, even trust the information that we're getting, you know. So in any case, uh, welcome, Jay Lee Quinn, to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: And uh, I'm excited to uh, get a chance to talk about what I've seen over the last, really, it's been 17 months, but of that time, only 14 months of it was on Twitter. So that (laughs) is what made the big difference in seeing how these lies incubate and how if you challenge them, you're labeled and these campaigns sort of roll out against you as the group Twitter think goes into full effect. So uh right. glad Thank to be able to sure. share the story and uh, talk about what I've seen.
0: Well, my first question I ask every guest who's first time on my show is, what was the precipice moment for you? What was the moment that made you decide to stop perhaps being a casual observer of What was going on so far as politics or world events and actually trying to get involved?
1: Well, Santa Monica on May the 31st of 2020 was a big moment for me. I had been recently furloughed as a photojournalist for Univision, the Spanish language television uh, network, the local affiliate in Los Angeles I was working at at the time. And uh, because of COVID, they laid off the entire freelance staff. And so I was... In Santa Monica, I had been following the rioting the night before because it came very close to my doorstep, uh, just right by San Vicente, which is you know kind of the heart of mid city of Los Angeles. The rioting got to the Target down the street, uh, but it started off that night on Fairfax. This is the night before. This is just a setup, Santa Monica. The night before on May the thirtieth, rioting on Melrose. Uh, small businesses were burned. And there was the Fairfax riot that afternoon of May thirtieth, uh, which is in front of CBS Television Studios. They, you know, cop cars were lit ablaze, and so so we had you know solid twenty four hours to forty eight hours of rioting uh, when May thirty first comes along, and Santa Monica just gets ransacked. And how it unfolded. And where I was at that moment in time sort of set the stage for me as to what why I wanted to continue doing what I've been doing, which has been documenting from Santa Monica to Portland to the Capitol on January sixth to this summer of riding that we had in Los Angeles, and I've been motivated and in, in a way just completely baffled by the, by the incompetence of mainstream media coverage. When it, when it, I never imagined that we'd be seeing cities get ransacked and, and, and a very uh, simplistic telling of the story, sometimes so simplistic that it leaves out major, major details, like in Santa Monica, that the rioting was a mile away from the Black Lives Matter protest. You know, that that huge details in logistics when you tell these stories are being left out time and time again. So it made me want to stick with it this long. I was standing there. Actually, I got out of the ocean. I'd been surfing that morning in Santa Monica. And a guy comes up to me and he's like, yo, you want to buy a wetsuit? And that was the strangest thing. It's May 31st. I said, we're about to have summer. Why would I want to buy a wetsuit? And what I didn't get was this guy not only wanted to sell me one wet, so he wanted to sell me two, and, and give me a really good deal for cash. And it's because they'd already been ransacking stores in Santa Monica, and uh, the Patagonia was one store that got, you know with wetsuits that got ransacked, and all uh, all of this was happening uh, away from the actual Black Lives Matter protest. So I go to the Black Lives Matter protest. I'm in, you know board shorts and flip-flops, and I'm I'm photographing the protest, and then I get a text that the van store is being looted near the Third Street Promenade, which is this big outdoor mall in Santa Monica. And so I hoof it over, and sure enough, the, the vans is being looted. The police are just a block away, just standing there doing nothing by the Third Street Promenade, sort of locking down the major chain stores that are there on that thoroughfare. And because I don't look like press, I'm able to just record on my phone and capture what's going on. Now, this was kind of every photojournalist's, uh, you know, it, it was like a, a, a mystery. When, you, when I reviewed the, the, the footage the next day, I saw something that I didn't see when I was in the thick of it, which is I saw a guy with a latex mask, and it was a creepy latex mask and in my video he's coordinating with other people quite clearly who are covered from head to toe on a sunny day in Santa Monica they're covered from head to toe in basically uh, a form of black block which is just a little more pedestrian looking but nonetheless hoodies or what what have you and masks and and i realized that as i review this footage that that this this is all coordinated the people are talking to each other and they're they're essentially on lookout and you had spotters and people that were, you know, communicating with each other. It, it, it was fascinating. I couldn't believe it. So I set out the next night to determine to find another looting in progress. And sure enough uh, I did eventually in Hollywood and there were two guys coordinating it that were one guy was a crow crowbar on crowbar detail. And the other guy was, was on lookout and the guy on lookout caught me filming everything going down and uh pretty soon i had bottles of milk being thrown at me and uh uh and it was all a mystery to me i didn't even know that the milk was for you know counteracting tear gas and so forth i i i was completely new in a lot of ways to this radical scene and what was playing out on the streets of los angeles on uh may the 31st and then june the 1st was when i went out and uh, got got the milk bottles chuck hurled at me and uh
0: it, so getting some milk bottles hurled at you was the catalyst and you're thinking you know now i want to get involved
1: well yeah i said uh, i must be on to something
0: if, right.
1: if if uh i must be doing something right if uh you know i, I have exploding milk, milk bottles being hurled at my my prius as i uh, <laughs> as i take <laughs> as i take cover so so the whole thing was just bizarre and otherworldly, and as I said, it was so far out of the mainstream. And subculturally, what was going on on Twitter, which I would discover three months later, was uh, totally divorced from the mainstream understanding and mainstream media uh, understanding of what was going on on a street level. And and that fascinated me, and so I just kept digging and traveling and digging because you know I was. I was. I had time. I had time to be an independent and and really, uh, just dive in and right. try to figure out what was going on. And I started making connections to stories I had done. i had covered, you know, anarchist tree sits in at UC Berkeley back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and I started making connections as I looked back to to different literature uh in this the sort of scene in the in uh you know when you look at like crime think and it's going down and all of these anarchist uh contemporary anarchist uh publications and uh, anti-fascist movement you know uh, advocates i started just to make connections to different stories i had covered in the past i grew up i was born in berkeley my parents met at uc berkeley Uh, So I very much have been culturally only on the left. There's nothing in my upbringing that that hails from any kind of conservatism or or Republicanism. So so I was seeing things and uh, making connections when I was researching online and then seeing it play out in the streets all the way up to this summer in Los Angeles where we saw coordinated direct action at the we Spa, which was such a blatantly manufactured event where conservatives were attacked on July the 3rd when they went to protest uh, the WeSPA. Spa. And we can get into the details of sure.
0: how Well, that played out. I would make example. one minor clarification only to say that it wasn't just conservatives. It was like soccer moms with like PTA meeting quality signs as well. Like there were plenty of not, hard right well,
1: well yeah uh so a, a lesbian that i interviewed uh who sort of proudly uh wears the uh the slur of the acronym turf um she was you know somebody who was harassed and she kind of put on a clinic to the black block as they were as they were trying to you know persecute her right there in the on the sidewalk as far as it's one of my videos I posted it's her saying did I say that and just calmly saying did I ever say anything about being you know against trans rights have I ever said anything you know and she says she just came to, to you know observe and check it out but she she is somebody who they they were slurring as turf and then they chased her friend away and so right. yeah it, it wasn't it wasn't just conservatives that's very that's uh, that is correct it was anyone who was perceived to be against the radical black bloc mobilization, which was coming together under uh, a new account primarily called SoCal Antifa that had popped up on Twitter on April the 28th. And a lot of what we saw, I believe, uh, this summer in Los Angeles was because there was a, a catalyzation around this this twitter account and a couple of other personalities in the Los Angeles scene
0: like who, Precious Child
1: Precious Child is one you know Vishal uh Singh who uh is sort of billed himself as this gonzo journalist who has participated in some of these conflicts and uh sometimes uh, without a camera you know Chad Loader is the uh biggest influencer when it comes to anti-fascist, uh, quote-unquote, activism, which in- includes militant tactics and, and black bloc. So so these personalities who were able to uh, kind of attract attention, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to look at them now because in the last two months, there hasn't been here in Los Angeles that uh, coordinated counteraction that we saw in July and August, and that primarily I think has to do with the fact on August fourteenth that somebody was arrested in that SoCal Antifa uh, coalition for stabbing uh, a somebody who was of the right activist you know group uh, near the heart and uh, being arrested for it. So, so there have been a bunch of different i guess you would say uh setbacks for for those in the in those antifa coalitions at which point it's it's made it kind of untenable for them to keep coming to these right-wing events and we could discuss about what that is it could be a, a mixture of circumstances really
0: well and obviously and i've watched some of your your older stuff and i do advise my listeners and viewers to check out your channel obviously um but you were you were there for January sixth. Then you were there for Charlottesville. Um, I wasn't at Charlottesville. Oh, Charlottesville. you were not at Charlottesville. Okay. No, was I, was I mean that would have been part. 2017.
1: So that was. Okay. Uh, but in fact, what's interesting about Charlottesville, is i would watched so many documentaries about Charlottesville, and, you know, Frontline, and, and I I went into my I guess investigation and pursuit of figuring out what was going on in June of 2020 my thesis or what i was looking for was i was looking for white supremacists and white nationalists which i thought to be infiltrating and disrupting the black lives matter protest i was i was that naive that i didn't understand the canon of revolutionary politics on the left that that was you know, because my parents are were, you know, UC Berkeley sort of left 60s, you know, peaceniks for the most right. part. I mean, my, my dad got out of serving in the Vietnam War by offering his services as he had just graduated from medical school and he, was, he went down to the uh, the Indian Reservation in, in Arizona. And my parents lived um, with the Hopis and, and, and Navajos for years as an alternative to military service, because he didn't believe in the Vietnam War. And so my understanding of leftist uh, radicalism was very much from a pacifist perspective. So it was very surprising to me uh, once I got to Portland, everything was you know, undeniably right there in front of your face. It, but that was at the time that the uh, federal uh, officers were coming out nightly and clashing with, with the, uh, militant, uh, black bloc. So, so I, that once I saw it all in front of my face in Portland, it was like, Oh, okay. Well, this is, I guess what it is. But when I was looking at tape and trying to decipher what my own eyes, what I'd seen with my own eyes were a lot of white people that were in these roles of, you know, uh, anti-fascist activists, you know, of wielding the crowbar and opening up business and so forth. And I found the whole thing just, just (laughs) extremely dubious that, that, that in my hometown, I was looking at tape and here's, here's these white kids opening up the shopping mall. And then all these black kids were running in and looting it. And something in my brain said, well, this is wrong. Who's doing this? must be the white supremacists that I, that literally is what if you are on a diet of mainstream media and and white supremacy is being dragged through the headlines day in and day out i could not i could i could not get out of that framing and so i went to prove it i went to tulsa first that was the president's speech i believe it was around june um, the middle of June of 2020, and the president was giving his first speech since COVID hit, and it was the rally in Tulsa that the media all said, "Oh, only six thousand people or whatever showed up." Or, um, uh, I was convinced that it would it was going to be some sort of brag fest where the ethno nationalists and white nationalists that I'd heard so much about were all going to be there bragging about how they had essentially uh, disrupted Black Lives Matter. Now, when I got there, I saw something very different, which is I couldn't find ethno-nationalists. I was looking for the sort of Richard Spencer, you know, the, those that are on, you know, you see in the headlines uh, in regards to Charlottesville 2017. It became very clear as I as I began to, to learn more that they were not involved, that they were all legally strapped due to what went down in Charlottesville in 2017. And they weren't the ones that are very active in this Trump crowd. But I think some of us on the left just associate, oh, Trump supporters, Charlottesville, neo-Nazis. And I scoured that crowd for some sort of evidence of, of these ethno-nationalist groups. I had studied all of the you know symbols that I would expect to have seen, you know, from Charlottesville, and I just couldn't find it. I found one guy, one guy who had a 88 tattoo on his calf, and then he covered it up later in the day. But to my mind, I was like, well, this one guy has a neo-Nazi tattoo. Does he represent the thousands that are here that don't? (laughs) You know, It, it, it just... It just started, and and I saw Google. The first Boogaloo person I talked to was black, and was was openly just wanted to talk about the Second Amendment, and I and I was like, well, that's not fitting what I was expecting. I thought these this was some sort of white supremacist, supremacist militia, and then the Proud Boys did kind of live up to, I guess what that they do which is as, as the black lives matter counter protest came by the proud boys sort of had mace in their hands and i photographed that and they went to the front lines and, and basically set, you know called the blm uh protest was calling one guy a crackhead and all this stuff they were just basically mouthing off this is uh i guess i would assume to be uh, tulsa area proud boys and, but there were only seven of them, and that's what confused me. I, I thought if this was some big coordinated thing uh, of white supremacy, I was taking that quite literally, that, that there would be more than just seven Probably Not only that, at one point, a guy with like a Rastatam and in a boombox was playing Bob Marley, and one of them lit up, and they smoked a joint. As, he was, as this guy was blasting Is This Love from the boombox, and everybody just started kind of nodding their head and just it diffused the whole thing. So I got very confused because I thought, well, then does this mean that the Proud Boys aren't ethno-nationalists if they're willing to chill and smoke <laughs> a doobie with this black dude? And nothing was adding up, and that's because the world that – the activists have been so good at portraying from Twitter bleeds over to mainstream publications, which I get in my newsfeed, that stuff trends. That is what we are learning is uh, the surefire way to, to get engagement is to have outrage based demonization, uh, type stories uh, come across your newsfeed. And I was so inundated with that ingrained, uh, It was so ingrained into my thinking that it took me months to just dismiss the whole notion of, okay, I guess I, everything I was told, I, I, I guess it's not, at, it's not to fact. It's not what I'm seeing the going into these Trump crowds. I'm not seeing people who are preaching intolerance and, uh, their message and what and who they are is very different. Now, saying this just outraged me. I have a best friend who who has not talked to me in over a year because of of saying this. This is somebody I've known for thirty years, you know. So, so I can't figure out. I couldn't for the life of me figure out why it was almost like a religious belief that, th- that these people are who they are and if you're going to go against it then you're a heretic of sorts and you're not going to be welcome at the table not only that but on twitter we're going to blast you as a right-wing propagandist we're going to say that's what you are we're going to label you that and we're going to tell people to have no conversation with you to block you and the number, you know, I don't, I've never really looked to see the number of accounts that have blocked me. I've blocked nobody. And that's just how I roll. It's not, it's not about that for me. It's not about being right or using the power of Twitter to insult somebody and bring them down a notch. It's about trying to get to understand who everybody is, who's showing up in the streets,
0: and unfortunately, like people understanding it, I think, is actually exactly the opposite of what these people want. You know, they, they don't want anybody to understand it. They they want people to understand their version of it, whatever that is.
1: Or commit to their version of it.
0: Right, exactly. And I guess just to give you a little bit of my background, um, the first time I got into like on the ground activism was during Occupy. And so we were also pacifists. Like that was Peaceful protest was at the core of what Occupy did. And Black Bloc slash Antifa existed at that time. And they would openly tell everybody that they were anarcho-communists or just communists. You know, they would openly tell everybody that they wanted to see society, you know, upturned and destroyed. Um, And they would follow around behind our peaceful marches and break shit. And then we would have to, like, come out and explain to the media that that wasn't our idea. And one of the things that bothered me, like I'm actually one of the people who drafted the resolution, for example, for Occupy Detroit and Flint to to openly denounce violence, was that, first of all, I recognize that there are extremists that will be involved in that sort of thing. And I would say that is true, obviously, of Black Lives Matter Um, As well, you know, like not everybody involved. Black Lives Matter is on board with that stuff. When I had Daryl Davis on my show, he he made the very, very valid point, you know, that Black Lives Matter has a lot of chapters. My counterpoint, which was the same thing that I would have said back in Occupy is, okay, but if we're silent about it, you guys are always telling racists that their silence is violence or whatever, if they don't do enough, you know, but you guys are just dead quiet about it. You know, and how, te- and how is
1: that different? How is that different than this crowd of January the sixth that is being uh, has the finger pointed out them and, and are condemned because somebody's there with a confederate flag that they don't police the person who has the coded or sometimes quite blatant racist t-shirt. So exactly, forth. no, you exactly,
0: know. and that that was the, the the next. I was just saying that at the time we understood that we had to take responsibility when somebody did something like that during one of our actions and say that's not us. Now, nobody does that anymore.
1: No, now, it's
0: if not they if not only do they not you get three layers, one second. One of them is the ones who deny that it's even happening or that if it is happening it's all white supremacists even if you happen to be seeing people of color doing it. <laughs> you know, it's all white supremacists, you know, or You get the people who say they're kind of apologists for it or they're just outright encouraging it. And, and, you know, literally just saying that's what we need to do. Go ahead.
1: Well, no, that, that one I see a lot of, which is people saying, this is what we do. These are the true believers who say that uh, they don't want peace police. And that's the kind of, that's the term that's out there used quite, Often that the last thing that they need is is, is somebody to police the protest and, and act as peace police, and uh, that the, the type of protests where this kind of violence erupts, the diversity of tactics are welcome. Saying that you know it's not for anybody to condemn any any way that somebody chooses to protest, even if that includes
0: uh, violence and. And, and definitely, I, don't, I don't consider
1: that protest. I don't consider that protest at all myself.
0: No, me neither. And, and it's actually scientifically proven to not even be as effective. It's about 25% effective as opposed to 50% effective for peaceful protest. I think I sent you a link about that. But the, the point is, is that um, it seems to me that, you know, and, and the other angle that usually gets thrown on that is somehow white people are not allowed to tell black people how to protest. Like that's a pretty common thing as if, by virtue of the color of someone's skin, they are correct or incorrect about something. And my attitude about peaceful protest comes from Martin Luther King, who they've since tried to like mischaracterize or try to claim that he was thinking about violence towards the end, or or they'll just say he got shot, so therefore his methods didn't work. Right. And I, you know, I, I think the other element to this though is like. Uh, there's the head of them, um, the Nazi party of the United States has a blog talk radio show and you can call in and talk to him. And I asked him what he thought about this. And he's like, oh, that's great for us. You know, they're doing a fantastic job of proving, you know, and mind you, I'm quoting him, proving, you know, everything that we say about black people, right, you know, and how they need to be out of this country. And we're getting so many more recruits than we would have before. And that's actually something I discussed with Daryl Davis was, you know, during the end of the Obama administration, there was a period where the Ku Klux Klan was so pathetic that they were talking about removing racism from their platform. Um, not that it's pathetic to not be racist, but to say that they're such a pathetic organization <laughs> that now they need to remove racism from their platform and even allow people of color to join. And Daryl, com- you know, actually confirmed that that did in fact happen. That the Ku Klux Klan was looking at rebranding because there was just nobody interested, you know, and you know, like when we're bringing up the white nationalists, um, I, you know, they make films about Nazi skinheads. Um, I've been in the thick of things. No skinheads showed up at Occupy because they, you know, just, they would have been outnumbered like a million to one. You know, um, there were tea party guys we might get sometimes, but those conversations were usually cordial. You know, they, we definitely didn't agree, you know, but we weren't fighting each other, you know, and there was still a very non-violence attitude about things. And I think what, a you know, For me, my opposition to what they're doing is because not only it's not even a question just of morality, it's not effective. It doesn't work. It has the opposite reaction, you know, that that to what you would want. You know, nobody, for example, has had an epiphany that they suddenly care more about people of color being profiled as criminals, for example, because a bunch of people of color went and burned down a city and looted and destroyed things. That does not help them. You know, if, you're, if you're fighting profiling, which you should, if you're fight, fighting a, a bogus public image of your people, going out and doing exactly what the KKK or Nazi you know, organizations would say you do does not help you. Not to mention, I mean, it's funny, is like when you brought up the riots, it's like um, statistically it's shown that riots destroy the local economy and increase poverty. You know, they talk a lot about, for example, the Tulsa Race Massacre. Well, why is it that the KKK showed up in their neighborhood and burned it down instead of burning down their own neighborhood? That would be because they knew exactly what would happen to the local economy of that neighborhood when they did that. But nobody's thinking like that. Um, It honestly felt to me, and I noticed this all the way back in Occupy. You talked about comparing it to a religion. I was at Occupy Detroit and Occupy Flint primarily. And so there was kind of like a test and control. Um, Occupy Detroit was infected with wokeness. I want to say probably about halfway through its existence. And it devolved into little tribes of angry activists constantly fighting and bickering with each other. Occupy Flint was equally diverse as far as race and gender and you know people of the LGBTQ community. But there was no wokeness. So not only was it far more productive, like we got way more stuff done. We had solar power charging our, you know, electrical devices at Occupy Flint. We had these great structures that kept us warm, you know, like all kinds of great stuff was going on. Occupy Detroit was a mess. Occupy Flint was not. And I would directly link that to the fact that we weren't spending a bunch of time wasting our time on, you know, teach-ins where we're going to explain to this group of people that they're less oppressed than that group of people, where we weren't gumming up our, you know, debates on what to do next on, well, you know, you're a white male, so therefore your view on this issue holds less validity by virtue of that. Um, You know, basically, Occupy Detroit now is just kind of a, what's left of it is just like a, a mild Facebook presence, and maybe some of us still talk to each other, but it just disintegrated. And I wouldn't say that Occupy Flint is necessarily better on that, but, um, and there was still infighting in Occupy Flint, like there would be anywhere else as far as just people interacting, but the woke stuff destroyed the effectiveness of those movements. And I hate to say it, but I honestly believe that that's by design. It looked like social engineering to destroy the left because Occupy at its apex was an extremely dangerous organization to, the Wall Street world. Um, and I did a video about this because somebody else had compiled this. But around the time that it was, was like Bernie, Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton, there was still a lot of Occupy uh, you know, activists still left. And um, there's a, a trend you can actually follow statistically that the news stopped talking about Occupy, stopped talking about the bank bailout Stop talking about banks and monetary issues and class issues more specifically. There was no more rich versus poor, you know, and one of the things that this presentation brought up was uh, there was a moment where Hillary Clinton is addressing people at a rally and she's like, you know, Bernie Sanders wants to break up the big banks. We could break up the big banks tomorrow, but what would that do to stop racism in this country? What would that do for the LGBTQ community? What would that do for the immigrants? Like, she literally just changed the crowd's attention directly to talking about the, the woke fights to distract from the issue of wealth inequality. And now we're being told that all wealth in- inequality is entirely based in race. And go ahead.
1: I'm curious what you mean by design though, or, or engineered. Is that what you said? Yeah. I I
0: honestly feel somebody probably went out of their way to manipulate and destroy that situation. I think that there was who I don't know, but it showed the signs of somebody having a strategy to say, how can we get rid of this thing? Well, and we can't keep getting all this attention to our bad banking stuff. What are we going to do about it? So I have a feeling You know, I can't prove it, but being there on the ground and having studied social engineering and um, how these things tend to go down, um, I realized, man, you know, if you ever wanted to just render Occupy ineffective, this would be the best way to do it. Because we before that, Occupy was a totally colorblind, gender neutral, almost utopia of activists who would have never even known each other beforehand working together hand-in-hand in hand seamlessly into a group of bickering, angry people who were incapable of communicating with each other, and it happened very rapidly. Um, so it, it gave me the feeling that somebody, you know, entity, whatever, had decided that this would be the best way to render the left um, essentially useless, you know, and they succeeded. You know, so I'm not tinfoil hatting. I can't I can't say that I know exactly who did it, you know, but whoever did it, they did their job well. And as a result, what's left of left activism now, because that was the other thing that I wanted to point out was that Occupy inherited the nonviolence of the previous civil rights movement that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Now it's not like that anymore. Black Lives Matter does not have that same relationship with nonviolence. Um, some do, but by and large, the organization it, you know, is also just kind of openly um, communist. They don't even argue about it anymore. You, you do have to dig a little bit to find it. But, you know, and I say that as somebody, it's like, I'm on the left. I don't hate communists. That's not the issue. It's that people are just lying about it. You know, that's what concerns me. You know, and the kind of, uh, real quick, the kind of communists we're talking about would be like Patrice Cullors, for example, glowingly reviewing somebody's book and comparing it to the Red Book of Mao. And that was the book that was used to kind of bring about a violent cultural revolution that got a whole bunch of people killed. So not just communists, but dangerous communists, not people who just want to freely live and work together and, you know, but people who actually would want a totalitarian regime to come in and get rid of whoever they don't like. And, you know, those kinds of communists. Go ahead.
1: And yet in practice, all three women who started Black Lives Matter are extremely cap- capitalistic in their endeavors, even though they give this nod to far left radicalism. In other words, you, uh, you know, Patrice Collers, I think bought like what, three or four properties that, yep. uh, you know, it was written a book, how to, how to deal. I think it was with Warner brothers, you know, uh, as far as developing content and uh, another one's represented by like the William Morris agency. And another one is also on a book tour. So, uh, virtual tour, I guess.
0: Then you could also fun. talk about like kind of the people who grifted on top of that, like say Sean King, you know, right. who recently had a falling out with the parents of a of a guy who had been shot by the cops because he was out talking about fundraising for them, and they're like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> they called him out on Twitter. He actually deleted his Twitter account because of that. They're like, oh, really? "We didn't tell you to do that." No, yeah, they're all millionaires at this point. I, I think you know. What that brings to my attention would be the the moment in Animal Farm when the pigs kind of slightly change the rules and say all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Because okay. when Patrice Cullors was confronted about that, that's what she's like. Well, you know, I got to take care of my family. And I'm like, yeah, OK, I take care of my family, too. But they don't have five hundred thousand dollar homes. <laughs> you know, there's,
1: like, a, there's a video of her, Alicia Garza and somebody else. uh talking about black lives matter and they're, they're doing it over champagne and an outdoor, um, like an outdoor patio setting. And they have a whole spread in front of them and they're just talking. And And it is the most sort of disconnected presentation of, of black lives matter from what you saw on the street. And that's why you saw different chapters sort of, uh, pull back, or, or or even take on Black Lives Matter global network, the the big sort of face of this, because the chapters that were doing this frontline radicalism were in essentially a different world than right. the than the founders who showed zero leadership. And the issue of leadership, you know, I want to return to your thesis or or feeling or premonition that that things are somehow uh, engineered? Is it – or uh, –
0: Manipulated?
1: Manipulated, yeah. Is it equally plausible that movements without leaders – leaderless movements, as Occupy was, and essentially what Black Lives Matter was, too, is it's this leaderless thing – you know, modeled off the same anti-fascist, anarchist, um, autonomous—you know—organizing. Uh, Is it equally plausible that the lack of leadership essentially dooms these movements to to this uh, culture of of turning on each other and uh, essentially endless? persecutions
0: well um, i mean there was definitely infighting it's definitely not unique to the left for example the libertarian party tears itself to shreds like they, yeah. they fight each other viciously i remember the ron paul movement because i was briefly involved in that you know people would you know would tear each other apart over that too i i would say that you know the leaderlessness is definitely a problem but i think insofar as where it comes from with antifa Their plan is just that they decentralize for the same reasons that the French resistance did. It makes it harder to put a finger on, you know, who's responsible and who to go after. You know, it doesn't mean that they don't have a collective understanding of what they're trying to accomplish. It just means that they don't, you know, they don't openly have people that are out, you know, as their leaders. I mean, you could call Mark Bray... A central figure, the guy who wrote that anti-fascist head, you know, handbook, handbook but, yeah. but I don't think you ever see him out in the streets. Um, you know, right. he's, um, but I, I think that in some cases they do the the no leadership thing. And here's what I've kind of discovered, and this is something because there were a lot of anarchists at Occupy, and we did a consensus model decision making, and, and it worked really well as long as everybody involved was was honestly participating in good faith, but. What I would say is is that what I have encountered, and not just on the left, this is true of right anarchists too, um, is that the people who are usually screaming the loudest about anti-authoritarianism, when you end up going to groups with those people, tend to be the people who end up doing most of the talking and kind of pushing things, and you notice that eventually they're kind of making the decisions, and you're like, oh, okay, I think I see what the real problem here is. The real problem is that you want to be in charge. It's not that you don't want, you know, anybody, to be, you know, and I guess another good example of that is, um, I mean, you studied Charlottesville. Uh, I debated Christopher Cantwell once back when he was still an anarcho-libertarian guy before he became a white nationalist skinhead nutcase. And he was the kind of personality, this was something that, me and another leftist anarchist talked about was that, you know, and these movements seem to attract a lot of people that you would not want as your neighbor in a stateless society. <laughs> like, right. you know, like they it, it's, again, it's not just a left or a right phenomenon. It's, you know, anarchy in general tends to attract some really toxic people. My ex-wife um, met a guy at the libertarian convention, went off to be with him for a while and, you know, he convinced her never to call the cops and, Authorities bad and then eventually he brutally beat her and forced her to drink his urine this is the kind of person he actually was you know and then you again you ask yourself like is this the person I want as my neighbor in an anarchist society where we don't have any police you know so so that's why it sounds often like I'm just beating up on the left but you run into personalities like that in Antifa you know um and as far as the categorization of black lives matter i have a friend of mine who is actually black and he's a little older he's you know he's my generation of leftist and he just goes these things and he's quiet and he's found obviously that they're willing to say a lot more stuff out you know out in the open around a black guy than they would around say maybe a white activist and i said well you know in reference specifically to abolish the police I said, what kind of people do you encounter who want to abolish the police? And he said, well, they come in two forms usually. I'm like, well, what's the first one? He's like, people who are utterly naive about the nature of crime, like just don't understand what it's like to live in those neighborhoods, has probably never been shot at or you know or shot, maybe not even ever been in a fight. He's like, those are the people that I first see. And he's like, ironically, usually they're white. And then he said, and then, I, and then he's like, well, and I said, so what's the other group? He's like, criminals. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, literally people I grew up with who are lifelong criminals, because he grew up in the ghetto. And he's one of the guys who saw how bad the violence is there, and he became more of an activist about, we need to change this and improve our communities. He didn't become anti-police out of it. You know, and it occurred, and he actually was the one who pointed out to me, because he watched my Rittenhouse video. He's like, you didn't think it was funny that like out of like the, like the four people or so that were involved in that every single one of them other than Kyle had a criminal record, you know, he's like, of course they want to abolish the police. He's like, would you want to be around any of those people if there weren't any police? I was like, well, no, you know? Um, and and that's, I I think that, but so the naive types combined with the types who are looking forward to being in charge in the event that the, the cops are out of their way, um, You know those personalities are present. You know, and the other thing that I've noticed when it comes to this, just this, this is true, just of groups in general, is that. um, So I follow the work of a guy named Jacques Fresco. He he was like about 104 years old when he finally passed away. So he'd been around for a long time, and uh, he was kind of against what he defined as specific group grievance activism. And I said, "Why?" And he's like, "Well, you start off with like you know the best of intentions, but eventually you kind of start to." become what you oppose you know you start to think to yourself well i'm just looking for equality and then eventually it's well equality but you know now i want some you know, like some payback for bad things done to me so now i, w- I don't necessarily want to be equal anymore you know i think equality will come when we're actually doing better than other groups you know like they you don't you don't ever say that out loud and the funny thing is, is like when i met him and he said that that was actually right before i went back to occupy and all this woke stuff exploded Because at the time when I was talking to him about it, I still considered myself a racial gender-based activist. And Fresco's activism is more about trying to fix the socioeconomic structures because he believes that things like sexism and racism and tribalism are all consequences of the economic disparities, that that's where they come from. So if you spend a bunch of time, for example, taking an aspirin to make you feel better about your brain tumor, you're still going to die. You know, um... And if it, so, I guess what I'm getting is to say is that he was a hundred percent right about everything he said. It destroyed Occupy. And I think that I've noticed that you get, you know, cause these people show up in other movements and maybe they're, maybe they're feminists, maybe they're LGBTQ activists. Like that's their thing. That's their wheelhouse. And so then they go to other organizations and then they try to make that organization also about their thing, their wheelhouse. And as a result, um, you know, you, you end up, do you end up with some organic evolution, I guess, into conflict, as you were mentioning earlier, which is why, you know, Fresco just cautioned against just doing it at all. Like he would just openly say there are no black people problems or women problems. There are people problems. And if you cure the economic situation that these problems go away, you know, and I guess to finalize my point on that, when I taught my kids about racism, we watched the movie Gangs of New York, which really doesn't, I don't think there are even any people of color in the entire film, but there's plenty of racism because at the time, the white Irish, get fleeing the potato famine, were the Mexicans coming to steal our jobs, you know. And the the point was is that these kinds of ways of identifying and othering people who you might consider to be a threat will happen in circumstances of poverty, um, you know, where you start fighting over resources, and it doesn't have anything to do with skin color and the people who are really powerful, the elite, have a vested interest in continuing to see us fight each other. Because if the white trailer trash people, and I don't say that as a derogatory, I consider myself to be one of them as a dirt poor white person, um, if they ever got together with the poor blacks and Hispanics, and talked collectively about, well, you know, maybe we're not the problem. Maybe they are the problem. And I think that's actually what Occupy was, was presenting a scenario where the poor collectively got together and said, our problem is these absurdly, fantastically wealthy people who don't even really consider anybody who makes under $100,000 a year even human. You know, um, anyway, did you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I I, I think that, the, uh, the everything that's going on in the activist scene is so opportunistic and so focused on the immediate rewards of social media and right. the power that one can wield to take someone down and, and the charge that people get off on, that that which you have just mentioned gets Unnoticed, Which is that if you were truly going to unite the working class, if you're truly going to live by the ideals of anarchism and, uh, you know, what social justice should be and could be, then it, it would be not along the lines of this sort of endless kaleidoscope of persecutions, but of what, what the working class is how both parties have left behind the working class and how uh, there's much more in common and much more in agreement when you talk about actual policy and issues probably than people realize because they're so busy fixating on this demonization trend.
0: And, de- and dehumanization too. And the other side is human.
1: Yeah is to to consider somebody of this other political field to be less than. And that fixation is is precisely what it manifests in such blatantly obvious ways. I mean, you have, you know, so-called anarchists, you know, adding the FBI on Twitter, trying to, you know, to hunt down every single person who was there January 6th, whether they were in the capital or not I, it just becomes this preposterous caricature of what so don't they realize don't they see similarities don't they understand that you know that that there are is probably if they sat down and had actual conversations the bigger dissatisfaction with our our leaders and elected officials and so forth is it's not Totally foreign, um, perhaps, and but that conversation never happens, and you just you were in in such a rut of tribalism that these people who consider themselves to be anarchists and so forth are in set instead instead uh, trying to uh, bring their who they consider to be their political adversaries to be punished by the state, you know, and and so you reach these absurd points where. You know, these these kind of, you know, and some of them might be nationalists or so forth who represent themselves in court and then, you know, are being scoffed at for being, you know, not having lawyers or what have you, you know. And I'm not talking about Charlottesville. I'm talking about other other stuff, other uh, instances where, for example, here in L.A., a proud boy. Uh, has been going up against Chad Loader, and there's there's this, been this sort of scene around the, these harassment cases that have been filed, and so forth, and uh, just the the scoff the, the scoffing at at the uh, the person who is uh, claiming harassment, and so forth, and and uh, uh, that person. You know representing themselves and, and the, what what what's being missed is that the political adversaries all of these people who, who go out into the street um are in a sense um, of like mind they're 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 dissatisfied by how they're represented in the current political system and so to demonize and dehumanize the other one all it all it does is it's 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 just a fix it's people that are just jonesing for attention and uh it it really is you have to pull back from it sometimes and just sort of turn away because it gets so revolting you know and uh
0: and well it has a lot great, in common right? with um it has a lot in common with religious persecution. Like it literally reminds me of the kind of crap that would go on during Inquisitions and witch hunts. And, you know, people were doing that also for attention or to prove that they were virtuous. Or did you see how close I am with God? Did you see how I brought down that woman because she was a witch? You know, like right. it, there's a you know, and I apologize for interrupting, I just wanted to kind of interject that point, is that it definitely is. It has all the signs of religious persecution right down to irrationalness, you know, but also the the corrupted motives that come out, which is like you said, they want attention. They want to feel important. They want to feel powerful. Um, And, you know, so there's definitely plenty of that going around. um, And I think that um, the problem that I'm having more has to do with the fact that there seems to be a war on the human mind going on our ability to think. Is is being threatened and in fact identified as a negative thing, yeah. um, you know, like uh, Benjamin Boyce's documentary on what happened at the Evergreen State College. Have you watched it?
1: Uh, I've watched parts of it and I've watched other other uh, renditions of it and spoken to Brett Weinstein myself.
0: And yeah, actually, I, I saw that. I'd love to talk to him. But one of the things I was going to say was that there's a moment in that whole documentary series. That does not get enough airplay. And I bring it up on my show all the time. And I did a whole video specifically about it, comparing it to witch trials. But it was, there's a moment where he's kind of away from the crowd and it's audio only. And so he's just talking to a few kids and he's starting to get some headway because he's a very logical, smart guy. And this guy walks up and starts screaming at him and says, You need to stop demanding that people use logic and reason and white forms of information. And the, Calling out logic and reason as something negative in of itself was bad, but to make it whiteness, that's when it clicked into my head thinking about that. Uh, Robin D'Angelo I guess she's the one who authored it, but it was a flyer that was put up on the African-American Smithsonian Museum of History that identified the scientific method, logical and rational thinking as whiteness. There's a really? war on thinking. yes. Yeah. And, and at first I thought, okay, maybe this is just a misinterpretation of this flyer. Then I hear this kid literally screaming that at Brett Weinstein. Um, and I was like, w- who the hell doesn't want us critically thinking, you know, cause I mean, from Fresco's perspective, he's like, you protect a society through critical and analytical thinking. Um, who doesn't want us critically thinking? Well, that would be people who are about to feed us a whole load of crap, you know, who wants us thinking emotionally and not rationally? Who benefits from that? Well, that would be people who are looking to manipulate us through our emotions and don't want us to be thinking about the rational meanings behind what it is that they're doing. And people who do that, like, ironically, I come back to, um, because one of the things that people don't know is that while capitalists quote George Orwell quite a bit, he was a socialist, and he made those stories as warnings cautionary tales to socialists to say if you're not careful this can happen to you and on our campuses there's a war on the concept of objective truth to say that nothing can ever actually be infallibly true and george orwell in his own writings in one of his books straight up point blank says this is a red flag if there are people at war with objective truth then you know that some form of authoritarian regime is attempting to come into power, that it is a direct warning. And the reason why is because if you can get people not critically thinking and only emotionally thinking, it's very easy to manipulate emotions. It's much harder to manipulate people who are actually thinking. And if we're going to raise our kids into that society of not critically thinking and my feelings are more important well, it's just too easy to manipulate people's feelings. And, and at the end of the day, you know, when you see some of these people like um, I had villain report on my show and there's a clip of him talking to this girl and she what does she say? She says, I'm I identify as trans and I'm a woman and I'm non-binary, like as if you could be all three of those things you know, and like, like that put her in a position of authority about what she was getting ready to say. That's just totally irrational. And then if you couple that, like, you know, we talked a little bit about January 6th, you know, there's so much irrational nonsense that goes on when they're talking about that too. You know, they want to be able to completely control the narrative and they want to encourage people to stop thinking they want to encourage a situation where thinking itself is something that is blasphemy. And that's one of the reasons why I used clips of a witch trial. There's a version of the movie Ivanhoe where the Knights Templar are conducting a witch trial to try to get this lady, you know, burned at the stake. And at one point the they, they point out that something is irrational. And the the guy who's the Inquisitor literally says, you know, something to the effect of now we see, how Lucifer, you know, the Dark Lord, uses reason and logic you know, to try to deceive us in our you know, quest for faith. And I was like, oh, where have I seen that before? You know, um, th- That's one of the reasons why I got into doing this again because I was very active in 2008 and then I stopped for a while to focus on my kids and then I just poked my head back in and the Kyle Rittenhouse thing was going on. And you know, I was just actually looking on George Takei's Facebook group And there are still people saying stuff that is utterly irrational and inaccurate that was proven wrong about what happened there months and months and months ago, you know, but it's so important to demonize the other, you know, and that's another reason why I, I want to end my rambling here, but when they say abolish the police and replace it with community justice, you know, if those people had the opportunity to enact community justice, they'd just hang Kyle Rittenhouse. He right. just, you know, no trial. We we know he's wrong. You know why we know he's wrong? Because he shot some people who were on our side. It doesn't yeah. matter what they were doing to him. <laughs> you know, right. it, so go no ahead. It, it will never matter.
1: It will never matter uh, because it is that cult-like mentality. So it will not matter, and there will be a GoFundMe up on Twitter uh, for whoever um, – you know, in, in the case of uh, of Los Angeles, um, the it was a trans militant named Nina Cohen who plunged, you know, the knife on uh, on August the fourteenth. Um, it was an attempted murder charge, which the uh, district attorney of Los Angeles had reduced to assault with a deadly weapon. Uh, and you know, three different anarchist accounts were openly fundraising for the bail uh, amount. And that's just how it is on Twitter right now, which is that the militant left is able to get away with whatever they, um, they want essentially they they, it is their territorial, uh, you know, it's it's their home court, I guess you could say, you know.
0: Well, right. And it, and no, it's totally, you know, there's a total blind spot. Like, Antifa can it, do no wrong. Especially because the right has been completely excommunicated from
1: it, you know, and, right. and kicked off, and they've done such a thorough job of deplatforming anybody from the right who uh, is, you know, uh, behaving in, in a like way.
0: Right. Well, and, and that actually kind of reminds me of something I wanted to say earlier when you brought that up, was that You know, what were they there for that day? They were there because a group of, you know, they believe themselves to be patriotically minded people were protesting mask and vaccine mandates. And I remember saying this because I've been talking to a lot of anarchists specifically about what Antifa is doing wrong. And one of them is what the hell are anarchists doing showing up to terrorize people for protesting government overreach? Like, what the hell? I was like, that is, and they all kind of agreed with me, like, no, you're right, I hadn't thought about it. I'm like, you should, because these people are your face now. Like, I can't even introduce friends of mine who are anarcho-communists who disagree with this stuff to other people, because Antifa is the face of anarcho-communism right now. You know, and in addition to that, the stuff at the WeSpa, um, what the hell did that have to do with fascism? It has nothing to do with fascism. And right. if it was really about trans people, and I made this point, and If I ever meet Precious in person, I would love to just, you know, stick this to them and have them try to answer it. But it comes down to this. If LA Antifa is so concerned about the safety and well-being of trans people, well, over in MacArthur Park in Los Angeles, MS-13 on the regular stabs and murders and attempts to murder any trans or LGBTQ person they see. But nobody's showing up in MacArthur Park in Black Block to deal with that problem. And the reason why is they know what will happen. You know, <laughs> it's not going to be as easy as pushing soccer moms around at the Wii spa. And there won't be any cops there to protect them. You know, from you know, it's just, they, they know full well that it's all just, it's all nonsense. You know, like they, they know that they don't actually have the spine to stop anybody. And that, you know, I did a video specifically because I was on one of the private forums for Antifa that you're not supposed to be allowed in unless you're one of them. And the the issue of abolishing the police comes up. And I ask them, so what are you going to do about the cartels? And they say, oh, well, you know, we Antifa militants will handle that. I'm like, no, you won't. (laughs) I'm like, you have no freaking clue what you're talking about. I was like, because they're not just going to stand across from you with plastic shields, you know, and just let you do and say, you know, it's not going to be a fight where you can, you know, spit slogans or actual spit on people and occasionally throw water or use, you know, um, pen lights to blind them, they're just going to kill you, which is the reason why they know better than to go to MacArthur Park and try to go after the anti-trans people that live there. You know, um, it, that that's the part of it. it it's all, that, that's why people call it LARPing. You know, and I, I think it's funny because I actually am a LARPer. I've done it. The difference, I would say, is that I know I'm pretending. <laughs> like, right. some of these people don't. You know, and it's If they actually succeeded in what they wanted, in many cases, they just have a really, this brings back to what my friend Rob said, a total naivete about what would happen in the wake of that. Because ironically, for example, the FBI has already pointed out that the cartel has upped their interest in places that have defunded the police already, because they know they're going to be able to get away with doing a lot more there. You know, um, I guess, uh, go ahead and comment on that. And then I'd like to talk a little bit more about January 6th.
1: Well, I agree completely. I, the this vision of a abolish, you know, law enforcement, law enforcement ab- abolishment is 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 absurd. Especially because I've seen it play out. In we've seen what happens when the police are, can't go anywhere, and it, it's a cult like meta- mentality. And so it's rights for some people, but it's not right. It doesn't mean rights for others. And that is the. The, the huge blind spot of the radical left is that they're not concerned of the rights for for others and this society that they envision uh, will essentially uh, will uh, they, they'll abuse their, that power they'll abuse that power in, in in a way that with no checks and no balances and they and we've seen, that happen so if you're against them or if you question or you bring even just bring up issues for 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 discussion that is enough to get you painted a certain way and i've had that uh you know i this the shocking thing to me that that happened about two weeks ago was i was covering one of these chad loader cases where uh and i went to, to try to get them to comment, they would not comment, you know, because uh, Chad Loader is an anti fascist activist, for those who don't know, who has over 100,000 followers on Twitter, and so is able to, you know, de platform people, go after them, and launch these campaigns. Uh, also, he has advocated for black block tactics and advocated for certain tactics uh, to be uh, used at protests and has been something of a shot caller. Uh, he is embroiled in all of these uh, harassment lawsuits. And and I spoke to his lawyer and I was trying to get an answer out of, in a legal filing, uh, Chad Loder is now referring to himself as a journalist. And he has adamantly said that he's not a journalist for, uh, you know, the better part of the last two years. And so they're just making this claim in order to kind of um, usurp legitimacy and, and, This is bad for journalists everywhere because if anybody can say they're a journalist and then go out and engage in in combat, that erodes, you know, what little public trust there is left. Uh, It makes it unsafe for actual journalists to be out there. So I've I've been very uh, adamant about telling this part of the story. And the the attorney, when I ask him, you know, your client – has has advocated for suppression t- tactics against journalists, clearly identifying journalists uh, to be uh, suppressed. Not not just not only one by one because they disagree, but actually out in the field to you know to block cameras, to to engage in uh, certain ways to to uh, make it so that journalists can't do their job. Your client has done that. How can you now claim in a legal filing that Chad Loder is a journalist, and he says, "Wait a second, aren't you the one? Aren't you that you should be coming to me for legal advice?" And I said, "What?" I was completely confused by the by this this what he was saying to me, and he says, "Are you're the one who stormed the Capitol?" And I I couldn't believe it. Here's this lawyer, this this attorney who actually serves as part of the San Francisco. Ah, uh, police commission, an oversight commission of the uh, San Francisco Police Department, and this guy is basically threatening me, and I even said that I've never been threatened by a lawyer before. But he's basically saying that, and I said, "No, I, you know, I'm a journalist. I covered the Capitol, yeah." And sure enough, within 24 hours, another account posts my picture that he took, and he gives this long. You know, thing on Twitter about how one of the things he can't stand as a lawyer is if somebody confesses a crime to him, because now he's a witness to <laughs> to to a crime that I supposedly committed, and I, I'm just the 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 lack of ethics to do something like that to to turn to Twitter take a picture of me post it, and then claim that I've committed some kind of crime just because I asked him a question about his client uh, essentially doing what he's doing, which is trying to suppress journalists.
0: All right. Well, yeah. And going after you because you gave any kind of unbiased coverage of what happened on January 6th. And I think to, to give my audience a little bit of background on the Chad Loader thing, I did a video specifically because Chad had came out after the stabbing and they were looking for information on Rusty, who was the victim, because there was really no way for Antifa to twist that. Like that was a real like nightmare for them, you know, in in a similar fashion to the Michael Reinhold thing, um, at least the way they were trying to hot potato it before. And I did a video about that too. um, But the point is, is that they were trying to characterize that that guy stabbed that guy because he was out hitting people with a skateboard as if he was scared for his life. And that's when I put together a montage of LA Antifa taking skateboards to people's heads, like literally knocking them down. That's how heavily and hard they hit them in the head. So it was just ridiculous. And thankfully it seems like they've kind of backed off on this, this notion that they're going to demonize Rusty. But the, the, the point is, is that that was just, C- clear, total propaganda weaving. There was no news to it. That That is, at right. that point, you are public relations, you know, for Antifa. You're not reporting on it. Not you, obviously. I'm talking about Chad. You know, right. and then that Vishal character does it too, constantly, you know, in ways that are so bad. And the thing is, is that the people that are looking for affirmation that Antifa does no wrong... We'll just listen to those people and go, oh, okay, well, you know, Chad Loder or Vishal said it, it must be true. You know, that's, that's it as far as I'm concerned. And then they move on with the rest of their day. I, right. I deal with people all the time who, you know, for example, um, another example of a, before we get into January uh I had a debate with um, Bo of the Fifth Column. I don't know if you're familiar with him on YouTube or not, but, um, he basically dresses like a right winger and then, you know, it, it, come to find out he's actually an anarchist, um, leftist and, um, and a convict, but he has a huge, um, following on YouTube and on Facebook and, you know, people go to him because he comes off as wise during his video presentations. And I started to uncover, you know, that he was on board with Antifa and, you know, somebody shared one of his videos and I went, wow, you really don't know who that guy is, do you? And I, you know, I showed them the screenshots of them, you know, because what Bo and I initially were arguing about was whether or not Antifa shot tiny or not, you know, and he came out in, you know, basically in favor of the Antifa side of it and called me a fashion apologist for doing anything and a propagandist for even suggesting that, you know, that Antifa shot tiny, you know, it was like, it was so bad, um, and he's usually pretty smart about that sort of thing. You know, he doesn't do that sort of thing in his channel, but he definitely did it on Twitter. And unfortunately for him, I made a video of the Twitter conversation. You know, but it, there are p- basically people do not know the truth about Antifa. And what's, what's weird to me, this is another thing that when I talk about engineered or like somebody did something on purpose, if you go research Antifa from, say, the Berkeley riots, go back to 2016 – Um, watch, like, there's an Occupy video specifically talking about the conflicts between Occupy and the Black Bloc. People were just openly talking about Antifa and saying that it's a group and it's an organization and this is what they do. Even leftist outlets were doing that at that time. And then sometime, I want to say around, uh, I guess, 2017-ish was when all of a sudden everything changed. Now... If it's the Hill or Washington Post or any of the left-leaning outlets, Antifa does not exist. It's just an ideal, um, you know, and anybody who opposes fascists, like, they're literally totally changed the way they talk about Antifa, like, almost, like, overnight. And if you yeah. look, you can still find the old articles. They didn't take yeah. them down. Yeah, you no, know. You know if-
1: Here's here's one thing you can do is is it's actually I think more like 2018. It would have been as the midterms as you're getting to the midterms. That's when uh, you know Trump has been in office for for a year and change. This is a little after you know Charlottesville. Then in 2018, I think is when the switch happens because if you if you Google 2017 Antifa and then you plug in a publication. Uh, like it's a very interesting thing to do if you plug in 2017 here I'm going to do it right now Antifa and then uh, the Daily Beast you will see an article and this is with the Atlantic with the Washington Post editorial board as well had a big article about Antifa groups and and how they uh, essentially help the forces they oppose or something that's a theme that you touched on earlier So when you Google these these publications, headlines come up that you would not expect existed uh, in the public continent consciousness. For example, Daily Beast. If you Google twenty seventeen Antifa Daily Beast, why Antifa Nazi punching is just a gift to the right. That's the Daily Beast, August twenty (laughs) eighth. Wow, August twenty
0: eighth, two thousand seventeen. You would never Um, see such an article now, would you? Right,
1: right. Um, uh, and then, let's see. And, okay. And then here's September 11th, 2017, the Daily Beast. Antifa says it's fighting fascists. It just might be helping to reelect Donald Trump. Um, right. So there was introspection in 2017 about this, but that's because, you know, Trump had only been in, office for a very short time, and then the specter of Trump and the possibility that he could, you know, be reelected, I think that's what what ushered in a collective cowardice amongst journalists to even talk about it. That and the, the tremendous amount of Twitterverse pressure that is wielded by these activists, I think somewhat insists that if you are going to talk about it, you have to be ready to, you know, sort of enter this kind of combative zone where you become part of the story because they will attack you consistently for reporting on them accurately.
0: Well, and, and it's not it- just the media either the government's position on Antifa changed too. Like I stumbled on a, uh, a department of Homeland security conversation where they were saying that left-wing extremism, including Antifa was becoming dangerous that's the only time I've ever heard them say anything like that. And now when you watch uh, people grill, you know, like the, the FBI finally did come out and say, no, it, it's a thing. It's real. But that was like a recent thing that they finally were willing to admit to that. And then, then they can't really answer any questions about what they're doing about it, mind you. You know, but but then they'll go back and try to guide the conversation back to, well, but right wing extremists are by far the most dangerous, you know, terrorist threat that we face here in the United States, and that right. you know leads me to the January sixth conversation. But before I get into that, I want to preface it by pointing out a moment from um, uh, Peter Joseph made the Zeitgeist films, and we don't need to get into any of the the crazy like le- like over the top conspiracy stuff that goes in it. But he did make a valid point once, specifically about the uh, the war on terror. The war on terror was a knee jerk reaction that had a purpose. Um, you know, that that served a purpose for certain powerful people. And he pointed out that, truth to be told, let more people died of peanut allergies than die of terrorist acts. And as a consequence, though, we were so terrified during the Bush administration. And that brings us back to another element of it. During the Bush administration, don't dare say anything negative about the anti-terrorist, you know, dialogue. You are either with us or you're with the terrorists. I mean, I, I quote that back to people all the time, and because people have forgotten what a prick George Bush was, they don't know what I'm talking about. But that's exactly what it sounds like. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists, or you're either with us or you're racist, or you're either with us or you're a white supremacist. There has been an enormous need to develop a boogeyman um, in the white supremacist. You know, I did a video called the truth about police shootings, because I went and investigated it myself. I'm a left-leaning person. I oppose police brutality, Um, but I went and did the real number crunching. And the reality is out of like, I have the numbers in my video, but we're talking about a huge population that only about a thousand people die at the hands of police in a given year. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's a little less. In 2019, Only 259 black people out of millions of police interactions were killed, 13 of which were unarmed. Now, all deaths matter is what I usually say, since you can't say all lives matter. All deaths matter. It doesn't mean that any of the lives of the people who are killed at the hands of police unjustly are irrelevant, but that's not the point. Who benefits from us thinking, because they use words like genocide to describe that. When statistically, and I have all of the receipts for this, you are more likely to drown in a swimming pool. You are more likely to die of a gallbladder complication. You are more likely to die in a house fire. You are more likely to die in childbirth, even as a black person in the United States, than you are to be shot by police. Do we need to improve it? Do we need to reform it? Do we need to alleviate, you know, and try to get the the death number to zero? Absolutely. Just like anything else. Who benefits, however, from making people think that this is a genocide? Who benefits from making people think that white supremacy is this enormous boogeyman? You know, and the reality is, you know, and that's something even Daryl Davis would agree with, the Klan is a thing, but it's way smaller than it used to be. And it's honestly... Like when you watch videos where they go to these meetings, the meetings are very poorly attended because there just isn't much interest. Neo-Nazi groups, that's something I remember talking about earlier. The only time I can even consider a moment when I would have thought that actual Antifa fought actual fascists would have been Charlottesville. I've never seen it other than that ever. And I watch a lot of footage, you know, but they need to create a fascist boogeyman too. And how does that work? Real quick, I'll finish this up before we move on. It, and I'll let you, you know, counter obviously, but they want to re—they're trying to redefine what fascism means. They're trying to redefine what white supremacy means, and they're trying to redefine what racism means, so that it's very easy to label people. And that also reminds me of religious persecu- persecution, and inquisitions. If you've studied anything about how witch hunters established if somebody was guilty. There were literally situations where they would, say, for example, hogtie a woman and then throw her in a body of water. And if she sank and drowned, well, she's innocent, you know, but at least her soul is with God. Or if she floated, well, then you burn her to death. Like that's (laughs) that. And we're not going to that point yet, but it's just as irrational. You know, that's why they need these things to be amorphous, nebulous concepts, because that way you can make anybody guilty for just daring to go against the party line whatever that is you know so go ahead and respond to that and then we'll move on to January 6th
1: well one of the chants you know that was a big part of the BLM and anti-fascist movement in uh, protest was this uh, cops and clan go hand in hand they they keep chanting that and it, I started to realize very early on when I when I published the video from Santa Monica of the ransacking of the van store I, I I just I think I put it on my own Facebook and I outraged a lot of younger people that were on my feed. These were people I knew um, I I like would go take some art, you know, uh, performing arts and different classes uh, at at the community college in Santa Monica. So I had some some uh, younger people in my feed and, and, and this one. One young woman was outraged that I, I, I wasn't supposed to publish faces. I wasn't supposed to do this. And, I, and it was a completely foreign concept to me that I was, you know, I was like, well, this is what I do. I, I do news. I shoot news. I publish what I shoot. I don't, you know, I I understand uh, if you're sympathetic to, to certain things, but, you know, this is what's happening and so forth. And, and I started getting all of these memes and, and talking points about, uh, about police deriving from slave catchers and 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 i started to see early on that this this sort of association of the police and white supremacy was really ingrained into the young activist mindset and i i think i told you uh when I was looking for white supremacists, I was also looking for this kind of connection. And one of the people I, I talked to, uh, we spoke about briefly. I talked to this um, professor at Chapman University who uh, is a uh, quote unquote expert uh, who teaches about you know extremism and uh, goes on to frontline. and And I've had some really good conversations with him. His name's Dr. Peter simi and and. I've had some good conversations. We disagree on stuff, but he knows he knew me from the beginning. What's unique is when I contacted him, I thought I was looking for white supremacists. And so when I showed him all the evidence that I was gathering, he thought I was pushing a little bit. And he even asked me, are you are you maybe, you know, kind of, you know, reading into things a little too much? I think. He could see that I really wanted this to be about white supremacists in June of 2020. And at a certain point, I reached, you know, it became futile because the evidence was so overwhelmingly stacked uh, on the other end, on leftist militancy. Uh, but the point is, is that I met him when I was looking for white supremacists. Then I came back with all this information that was, oh, hey, well, I was totally wrong on that. Uh, there's all of this coordinated violence, including attacking normie conservatives. And we were just talking about the headlines. I was just Googling uh, the Washington Post and Antifa, and one of the Washington Post headlines talks about Berkeley and uh, Antifa, um, Antifa activists attacking peaceful right-wing protesters. This is, this is August 28th, twenty seventeen. Black clan Antifa members attack peaceful right-wing demonstrators in Berkeley. That is the Washington Post in 2017. Right. Now, again, how did we lose another their their entire editorial board, Washington Post editorial board, August 29th, 2017, opinion: Antifa groups only help the hateful force, forces they claim to oppose. So right. all of this was going on. I know that somebody like Dr. Peter Singer knows this, that this was happening. But the emphasis is so uh, myopically on this white supremacy. And, and and what is the quotient of it? That's what we don't know. What, it, if we're not encouraged to use logic and reason and just react emotionally – then we are in this nebulous state, as you as you said, because what is the actual quot- quotient of white supremacy and white supremacy among the police? And I'm talking to Peter Simi about this. We we had several discussions, which I never published um, because I was I was so wrong at that point. In uh, I was off on these red herrings, and I didn't didn't uh, really have a full picture of what was going on in the activist scene but he would always bring this up that, you know, police and police connections to possible, you know, extremist groups and this and that. And, and I asked, well, what is the evidence on, on that? What did, and, and his answer to me is, well, we don't know. And I said, well, if we don't know, then, then how Why do we are you going on
0: frontline and telling people that? <laughs> right, right. So
1: how do we know it's even a thing if,
0: right. if, the, if there's, you know, that our,
1: our police departments are somehow infiltrated uh, by uh, ide- ideological white white supremacists and so forth, and so so it, it 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 was we were having these conversations, and I hope you know. And and I this is somebody that I I I, I do enjoy talking to. Um, although it, it becomes very obvious to me, I don't know if you're a professor in a university that that it teaches extremism, are you allowed? To all of a sudden uh, say, "Hey, I think we went too far on the white supremacy thing," um, and uh, and we we forgot about this other thing that we were talking about back in 2017, which was that that the hateful forces that these antifa-aligned groups oppose are actually being, uh, you know, fueled in a sense by them uh, especially when they're able to get away with it with with zero accountability or, or coverage from the mainstream press uh, so so it, it just the the that that professors or journalists are in a position where they themselves uh, despite their biases and, and good intentions may be unable to just have the conversation because they worry about the fallout to their personal you know careers and quality. And ability to, to continue in the work that they do. That should be very concerning because that means you never know if you reach that point where you've won, quote unquote. If you're in this battle against white supremacy, are you never allowed to win it? Is it possible that after Charlottesville, these are questions that I've asked, that that, you know, that I've asked an Antifa activist too, you know, uh, how was not that the victory? You know, if, if those people who are ethno-nationalists are being held accountable and are coming out of it essentially with blood on their hands and face, facing charges and facing all of this fallout, well, how, how do you not see that victory? Do you need to move on to the next rung of conservatives? Is that is that what you really need to do to define yourselves being an anti-fascist is to choose and cast another fascist to be against, or are you willing to see that you've won against the fascists and then bring, you know, people under a larger tent of anti-fascism and being, being uh, uh, against uh, anti-fascism in another way. Uh, Moderation in some ways is the best, is the best, uh, antidote to extremism and extreme, you know, any kind of you know, definable fascism.
0: Well, and I think uh, the point I, that you made specifically about how it can't ever end, um, I, I would definitely want to comment on that. Go ahead and finish what you were going to say.
1: Oh, just that that moderation. You know, I, I'm thinking of there's this one. I think it was in uh, whose interview was it? I uh, it was something on Vox, and they were talking to this guy in the Netherlands about. Dealing with extremism in the Netherlands, they said the Netherlands is a really boring place to be an extremist because (laughs) if if a right wing, the tactic was to just engage and just talk to these right wing extremists and say, "Oh, well, hey, well, what, you know, what are you? Why are you feeling this way? You know, (laughs) so forth." Well, at that point, it just becomes really annoying to be an extremist when somebody's, in, and that's kind of been my attack. And that's why I get blocked so much is because I get, I get on these long threads with these uh, um, sort of zealots and eventually, you know, they kind of get bored or annoyed and block me for the most part. Some are, are very, uh, uh, <laughs> very um, persistent, but, but I guess uh, the point that, that, that I wanted to make is that it's getting people to moderate or engaging and, and, not holding them up and demonizing, because when you demonize them, when you when you persecute them, when you deplatform them, what do you do when you when you take down all of Parler or when you take down every you send them off to the shadows in some dark corner of the web? Isn't it safer to know your potential extremists right there in in the in in the daylight in and, and be able to see them and to see how people are talking? I and mean, that's what you used to be able to see on Parler or or twitter and so forth so this mass deplatforming i don't know that it makes anybody safer or brings anybody closer to moderation at all so right. so the, all those headlines that i'm referencing i'm sure if we read the articles these are thinking journalists you know embracing logic and reason in 2017 saying if you just persecute and take people down that's only going to to make extremism more potent on the other side. If you allow one group to get away with literally murder, uh, as we saw in Portland in 2020. Um,
0: right. And, yeah, so- and they're getting more and well, they were getting more and more bold. I think now they're dialing it back, but, um, but to get back to what I was saying. Okay. So there's multiple reasons why it seems as though the antagonism must be preserved. First of all, um, you have the people making money on it. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier that Black Lives Matter, people are millionaires. Um, you know, Sean King, very wealthy. Ivermix Kendi got paid $25,000 for a 45-minute Zoom call to a school. Like, he didn't even have to go there and get on a podium and do a presentation. He got paid twenty five k for that. Robin D'Angelo makes absurd amounts of money. Um, you know uh, basically going and wokeifying companies and you know, then they all get book deals and they all get, you know, and I, so there is definitely like, what would these people do? They'd have to go get real jobs if for right. some reason racism was cured. And the, the people that I see get um, broiled up in the anti-fascism part of it. Like, I mean, the, so I don't know if you know who, oh, I'm going to forget the guy's name. Um, he does like these videos where he's talking at the camera and he's like in the dark. And um, he did this video called it's time to wake up like right after Trump lost the election. And, you know, he said that Antifa are not terrorists. They are anti-fascists who only exist right now because of fascist Trump supporters. And so I immediately made a rebuttal video to him using the video footage of Antifa showing up at democratic national headquarters and bashing out the windows and going into the streets with anti-biden signs you know like literally the first day that biden was in office yeah some of these people well the the antifa anarchist types feel that, that their job is not done until society is overturned and then suddenly has become a communist collective um to them so so their end game doesn't really happen you know um Uh, and i don't i don't see as much grifting in the antifa movement as i do in black lives matter um i'm sure mark bray you know he's making some money from his stupid book but i don't think that you see that quite as much those people you know when you talk to them in their in their terms in many cases you run into a lot of kids who who have a lot of mental problems um it gives them a place to belong you know one of the other things I've noticed was that um, this isn't just true of politics, but because church is not a thing anymore, people are finding other things that fill the void that people would normally had put their religious pursuit, you know, mm-hmm. and you see that not just in, you know, like, for example, I know of a, of a wrestling team where it seems like the family's almost kind of the family's involved. And funny is I called it a family, like a Freudian slip, but it's like, it's actually a bunch of families who are involved in this wrestling team, the youth wrestling team. And it really feels to me when I hang out there, I was like, this is like a church to these people. Like it's, you know, there's something else going on here. It's not just not that they're worshiping the wrestling team, but just that it feels like it fills the same social space, you know, that church would have in the United States at one point. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but I, I guess, uh, there's definitely a motive to keep the fight going on, and I think that um, you know it, when it comes to Antifa, as far as like um, like you know we just said they're doing the work of the right and they don't realize it. And they the, the real time examples of this that I could think of is I know a lot of moderate Republicans who are now being labeled fascists. I might add. You know, these are people who maybe not even like might have even not voted for Trump. Like they just didn't want to vote for Hillary. Like, you know, like just normal Republicans who are being labeled fascists. you know, but they are people who would have been aghast at the idea of federal troops going and rounding up violent protesters and then shipping them off to some secret prison who are now more and more comfortable with that idea. And they only get more and more comfortable with it. The more ridiculous Antifa and the militant parts of black lives matter behave. And, you know, that's why those of us from 2008 who were paying attention to things like say the Patriot act are going, Hmm. I'm like, you guys don't realize that basically what you're doing at this point, and they're getting away with it right now, for whatever reason, leftist extremism is invisible. Um, but, you know, if if in the event that they ever decide that they they've you know that they're done with the useful idiots, just like um, you know Stalin and his useful idiots, or uh, Adolf Hitler killing off his brown shirts, you know, um, th- when they're done with you and they don't have any need of you anymore, then you're going to be out of the, you're going to be out of the way. They need to make the common person more and more comfortable with the notion that anybody who violently protests, you know, should be treated as a terrorist and, and thrown off somewhere. You know, that's the only effect that I've seen. Nobody, this is something else that I discussed with anarchists. I was like, so you want to convince people that we don't need a state and your salute. And then their strategy is to go out and destroy people's property, threaten people, you know, literally behave exactly like the kind of people that are the reason why we have a state in the first place. Like explain this strategy to me, to me, that makes no sense. Nobody who actually wants an anarchist society would ever do that. Like, because it, it, that literally, you know, has the opposite reaction. It actually proves this is why we need a state. And that's why it just seems so ridiculous. Now, I want to get onto to this January 6th thing a bit, um, which just mostly just to point out that it's another example of the desperate need of the boogeyman. That's why I was bringing up the war on terror the war on terror would have had you believe that we were in dire threat of another nine 11 at any moment. And I mean, if you remember the color coded system and all that, where they're like, we are currently an orange level terrorism threat, you know? Um, And I'm not saying that terrorism isn't an issue. It's just that it, first of all, they needed to demonize middle Eastern people, middle Eastern people so that we can justify going to war in their countries. You know, in the and it was a knee-jerk reaction that had a purpose. I think that demonizing the police is a knee-jerk reaction in a similar vein, um, and I think that uh, the characterization of anybody who is patriotic. Now, what I would connect that to is um, I don't know if you've ever studied Yuri Bezmenov, but he was a KGB um, defector who came to the United States to warn us about. Um, the fact that the Soviet Union had already made efforts to try to destabilize our country. This was like back in the 80s. And ironically, a lot of the stuff that he said was going to happen happened, ex- particularly when it comes to the infiltration of our education systems, um, the infiltration of our news, you know, to just kind of become more and more communist friendly as time goes on. You know, um, but, you know, basically there is a need to demonize patriotism itself. And that was actually one of the nails in the coffin for me with Antifa was that they beat up a Bernie supporter because he had an American flag. You know, like that, why are we doing that? Well, the reason why is, as Yuri pointed out, as a former KGB officer whose job it was, was to destabilize countries, patriotism is the cure. Making people proud of their country and wanting to come together under the flag is the cure for all of these destabilizing things. And that's why they need to demonize it. That's why they need to label it as fascism. Because if people actually started saying, let's come together as Americans and make our society better, then that actually will undo a lot of the things that they're doing. And that's why they demonize it. When it comes to what goes on at the Capitol, like, you know, I've watched a crazy amount of footage because that's how I investigate things. And I look at things in the raw. I, I really don't, for example, like, you know, I watch some of Andy Noes clips. I take a lot of them with the understanding that Andy No kind of has a certain slant on things he's looking for, you know, sure. but at the same time, you know, so does loader and so does like so many of these other people, but I just try to watch the raw footage. In many cases, there's plenty you can learn from just watching the raw footage and you don't need to read anybody's spin on it. You don't need to listen to anybody's spin on it. And even in my own show, I just say, this is what I think I see. You guys you know, react any way you want, and I try to use as much raw footage as possible. It's also why I'm not monetized because <laughs> you can't be monetized to show a lot of the footage I show. but the the point is is when it came to January sixth, they really were desperate to have some kind of cognitive or not I'm sorry not cognitive like um material proof of the of the white supremacist Trump maga hat wearing racist boogeyman and january 6th gave them that and they're trying to milk it dry until they kill the cow and and the reason for that is that the reality of it just doesn't add up you know like i i know trump supporters one of the reasons why you probably saw so few proud proud boys and one of the reasons why frequently the proud boys you don't they don't show up because they can't get the numbers is the reality is is there is not an enormous amount of support for lawless activism on the part of most of the people that I interact with on the right. I'm not saying that there are people who don't want to do that. There are certainly people who talk about it on the internet, you know, or say that they might like to do something. But the truth is, is most of these people have jobs and families and can't afford to go to jail. You know, it's just that simple. Whereas the Antifa kids, aside from the fact, like you, you brought up the lawyers threatening you, there's something weird that goes on with the prosecutors in Portland you know, and a lot of these places just let these people go, you know, like uh, the prosecutor in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. You know, I actually gave them the information that led to the arrest of the first shooter. He was let off on a thousand dollar bond. And they they haven't pushed forward anything on prosecuting him for his part and what led to those shootings. Really? Yeah. And he's not prosecuting any of the damn rioters. You know, he's not prosecuting any of the arsonists. I mean, it's starting to slowly happen, but he has a different priority. That would be the kid who, you know, shot people to defend himself because that's the public case that he thinks he's going to make his career out of, even though he's been looking like a total moron in court. So I, I hope the, he doesn't turn in anything. Go ahead and give the a
1: person. Party. The person, uh, just to be clear, that uh, that fires the first shot uh It was shown in actually in a New York Times piece where they uh, had a gunfire expert listening and could hear that the first shots that ring out are distinctly different from the long gun uh, that Rittenhouse fires. Yeah, it's a pistol. It's a pistol, and it's shot up into the air. Right. Joshua Zeminski. Right. Right after uh, Rosenbaum and and, uh, Rittenhouse... uh, run past. Uh, Roosevelt throws the bag and a, a shot rings out and he fires up into the air. And in, in video, you can see the muzzle flash of, of the shot being fired. Now, this, of course, uh, now it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this is all uh, talked about, but from what you could tell, the first shot is fired. Rittenhouse then turns uh, thinking, you know, perhaps that he's being fired upon. I I, I would expect that argument to be made, but he, you know, turns and fires on the person who is, is running at him. But, uh, that this, it was not immediately apparent to people that this first shot is actually fired, uh, by the person who you, uh, have identified. um, And, uh, and my understanding is they saw video of him earlier at the gas station as well. Very tall, tall figure. Um, and I, and I have seen that this is all, I haven't thought about, uh, Kenosha. I was up all night that night watching every single, uh, live feed and put together a timeline myself. And, uh, what a lot of people don't know, you know, the, the things that they don't know about Kenosha that is you know obviously going to be on the top of, of the list another uh, I mentioned this to you the Black Lives Matter protest ended at 9 p.m. there is a feed by Reg Incognito who is a, a live streamer and he shows at sundown the uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, pro, uh, organizers saying that they're going to respect the wishes of family members and, and, uh, those who are, um, it was Jacob Blake, right? that that's right. In our show. Yeah. Yep. That, that, uh, are connected with, um, you know, the, 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 the issue being protested, so to speak, the, the police violence in that case and the wishes were made after, you know, it had, it had already been what two nights of rioting, or I don't, I don't know if that's, if that's exact, but, but there had been rioting, and so they. So at nine o'clock, the Black Lives Matter protest says, "Everybody go home," and they disband the, the protest. And then in that area, right in front of the, um, I guess, it's the city hall, all of a sudden, a second wave comes in of a more militant group, uh, and then they rattle the uh, the fencing, and all that happens with the, what, you know. Um,
0: well, right. I mean, and, and, well, and it's, it, it, I guess the point is, is that the official people may have come out and said that, but there were clearly people that were Black Lives Matter protesters who stayed and continued to participate to, in to what happened later.
1: Of the riot, act, the after curfew riot action, which was... Right,
0: and that comes back to what we said earlier about not having leaders. Like, you know, okay, sure, you told them that, but you know, then they, but they, the funny thing is, is like the, the burning didn't even stop then. The, the very place where the first shooting takes place was burned to the ground right afterwards like they you know the shooting didn't even end anything it just kept going and that guy is now totally ruined um you know he lost everything he had because his insurance company weaseled out of compensating him under the guise that it's domestic terrorism so they don't cover it you know but you're
1: talking about the um car source the car that's that's the where the 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 first shooting takes place.
0: Yeah, the first shooting takes place at the car source. Um, source, And and they were in the process of destroying the cars and all that leading up to that, and they were very clearly Black Lives Matter protesters doing that. I just... Well, see, I can't...
1: I don't even use the word protest. I think the distinction is that the protest is done. This is a riot. This is a riot. That's fair, that's fair, that's fair. And this is is why, um, and I think, as as journalists and those who have been reporting on Kenosha, that's an important distinction: is that a protest ends and then this becomes, I guess you could say, a militant protest, but it's pretty much a riot, and it's burning and it's breaking things and it's uh, all of this, all of those shenanigans which which turn deadly. Now, the other thing that people don't understand is that Rittenhouse, several times and in, in, in feeds you can see him offering medical attention to the Black Lives Matter. Um,
0: yep, I did that in my video. It's, yeah. I actually just take, there's actually one where he's literally doing that. And that's why when people tried to assign certain motivations to him, he went there to kill people. I'm like, well, first of all, earlier in the evening, he gave people medical attention. He was asking yep. people if they needed it all night. Somebody pepper sprayed him in the face. He did not retaliate. You know, I mean, if that was his motive, that's what he could have done. And in fact, did not fire his weapon at all until somebody charged on him. In which case, he tried to flee, and then someone else fired a firearm, which was what led to everything else. Now, most
1: people aren't interested in this. What you're saying, it's right. They're not. They're they're interested. It takes looking at video. It takes (laughs) it takes accepting that this is a human being, even though it goes against my political field. uh, And Mr. Rittenhouse does. Um, you know, it, it's, it, they're not interested in that. They want to demonize and score points and just be assholes.
0: Well, the and thing that's that I, where we are the, right the example, and this kind of segues really well into January 6th was that the analogy that I give is like, let's say we're in, in middle school gym and we're playing volleyball and the teacher calls a point for our team several of us saw that the point was the ball was actually out and that we should not have been given that point, but we don't say anything because we want to win. And if anybody else starts to say anything, then shut up, man, shut up. You know, that's how, that's what journalism has become. It's, you know, it's that that's where we're at. Yeah. And when it came to January 6th, I was saying we needed to demonize this enormous group of people. And what I noticed from watching all the footage was just that there were people from varying levels of radicalization that were present. So yes, there were people that wanted to go and do, you know, some violent things. Ironically, nobody had any weapons, which I found interesting. Um, or,
1: or so to speak, they had makeshift pedestrian type weapons. Right, but Not, no guns. Like, no, you know, yes. it, it wasn't
0: like, you know, rifles and pistols, which yes. even even in Kenosha, the BLM people had pistols. So right. the, the, the point is, is that, There there was this huge amorphous group of people and they all had different motivations for why they were there and different degrees to which they were radicalized. The the QAnon people are present, but that doesn't make say the blacks for Trump members of QAnon, you know, and the blacks for Trump and their presence, and the fact that I've literally never ever seen anybody in the Trump movement be anything but accepting to the blacks for Trump movement. And appreciative of it, I might add, you know. And ironically, when I think it was, it might have been the New York Times, somebody was doing a very biased documentary about January 6. It was one of the major outlets, and I saw some footage I hadn't seen before of the tunnel fight, is what I call it, you know, where a black man had been rendered unconscious in their conflict with the police trying to get into this tunnel, and the his fellow rioters very carefully and with great care picked him up and carried him away to make sure he was safe, you know, just like a soldier would in a fight. And I'm like, where's the white supremacy here? Because if that kid, you know, that guy fell over unconscious in front of like actual neo-Nazis, they would have taken the opportunity to step on his head. They certainly wouldn't be helping him out. I, I think that it's entirely possible that there were some racist people who showed up, but nothing it, that was, this is another thing is like, um, I, I listened to the live feed specifically because I knew that something was going to happen the day that Trump gave that speech. And I knew also that people would mischaracterize him to some degree. And he does openly say, I hope that some of you will be going to the Capitol to peacefully and patriotically let our voices be heard. That's what the guy said. That particular quote doesn't get any airplay. Nobody ever goes back to it. It's, it's just it was important for them also to try to connect the whole thing to Trump because they've been trying to boogeyman him as having this enormous power and being involved in every level of all of the right wing extremism. That's why, like when it came up during the debates, he doesn't even know who the Proud Boys are. He doesn't know who the Boogaloo Boys are. He doesn't know who these organizations are. It's not even on his it's not even in his radar. This no, does guess, not mean I don't well, think well, he's a great guy. Go, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, I would just object a little. I, I'm I I am pretty sure that uh, that to me that came off a little disingenuous. And, and here's the thing about Trump, because I do, you know, credit Trump's leadership as being the the glue that held everything together uh, for the what what was you know, build in his words, is wild protest. So so I do attribute. Uh, January 6th to Trump, uh, that was what unified everybody that, that was there. I think that uh, that you're talking about, I think it's the second debate between Biden and Trump in which he, he sort of infamously says, proud boys, stand back, stand by, right?
0: Yeah, uh, and so, he, he looked at them and said, fine, pick a group. What are they? Like yeah, proud boy, stand back and stand
1: by. So he doesn't not know who they are. The other thing is, is that you know, Roger Stone has not been. Um, I think there's still more that we're going to hear as far as Roger Stone's involvement. I mean, we're just it, it's it's hard because all this stuff gets muddled and you can't tell what's what is droning on and and what is actually relevant. Right. But, you know, Roger Stone has this connection with the Proud Boys, that he was essentially Enrique Tarrio's mentor. And um, and I've interviewed and spoken to, though it's not published because it ultimately, you know, would work against me getting guests, is what I realized. <laughs> I had this inter- interview right. with Enrique Tarrio. But I, I did interview, and I only released it for a short time when he was arrested because I found it to be newsworthy. Um, yet, I still, there's a lot that, um, you know, I would even, I would even as a journalist interview him again, but but some interesting notes. So he considers Roger Stone his mentor. When you would call his cell phone, you would get Roger Stone's voice if Tario was not to pick up. The outgoing message was Roger Stone saying, this is Roger Stone. You've reached Enrique Tario's phone. Uh, So so (laughs) so there's all of these weird kind of tidbits as far as
0: And I feel I need to clarify. I'm not saying that Trump is some kind, benevolent soul who is, you know, I I do think he expected there to be some really loud people. Um, I don't think necessarily that it was his intention that they would go into the Capitol and like, you know, string people up. I don't think that's I don't think even I think I want to be clear. My attitude about this is not in so much about giving Trump credit as it is that I think people give him too much credit. Like it's not that I think, for example, that it, it's possible he's aware that such organizations exist. I don't think he even spends a day thinking about it. Like, I don't think it's even on his radar, not because he's above them, but because he doesn't, he may not even have the capacity to be able to put all of these things and put them into their place. He doesn't, he doesn't strike as no, really being good. very bright that's what I'm getting at is that I think that people are assigning way too much mental faculty to this guy. I think that he's, he's playing a, a character like that was, yeah. it used to be my job to analyze candidates. And back in 2016, when I worked for Senator Gravel, I was like, well, for one thing, they're all very much underestimating Trump and they're underestimating Bernie Sanders. And it's because people are kind of sick of the, the cookie cutter, plastic, characters like Cruz or you know or and the Democrats had their characters that are just like that and they're you know people are done with that you know so the other part of it is is that you know Trump and Bernie were both speaking to the actual problems of the American people at the time that's why they were having so much success and you know Andrew Yang tried to point this out when he was on the debate stage he's like if you guys keep thinking all of our problems are because of Donald Trump you you clearly don't really grasp what's going on. You don't understand that Trump is like the symptom. He's the runny nose to your virus. He's not the virus. You know, um, and I guess before I go too far on that, I just wanted to clarify that i, I it's not about me thinking that, you know, I, I think it's more about him just not really fully getting what was going to go down. I don't think he expected yeah. it to go as far as it did. But it also doesn't change the fact that it comes back down to, there were plenty of people and I came across footage of this who were there just to peacefully protest, to do exactly oh, yeah. what he said, yeah. you know, like, and then they thought that's what they were supposed to do. And then there were other people. In fact, there's, there's a scene I remember where there were Trump supporters going, what the hell are you doing to this guy who is like bashing um, ho- like down some windows? Like they were trying to stop him. The problem, this was another thing when I'm watching all this footage of January 6th is it's a really big place. So, like, there's so many different entrances, and and so that's what allowed the, the stupid, like, inaccurate, um, the cops just let them in nonsense to happen. Then I went and watched the tunnel battle. Just the video that I watched went on for, like, 45 minutes, and it looked like a medieval siege, you know, where these people are, right. you know, smacking at each other, shooting bear mace at each other, hitting each other with blunt weapons. And, like, that's- this is not the cops letting them in.
1: <laughs> right. Well, now the cops do let them in. On see what what people don't understand is is the scale of and this is what what journalists have never communicated accurately because they weren't there. Most of the people who write about January the sixth weren't there at January the sixth, right? You know, so so they're not they don't have an understanding of the scale and the scope. And and what you have to understand is when you get to the capital, like the lawn you have like three football fields to go to get up to uh, the rotunda area. So it it was massive. I described it as a like, you know, Coachella or some kind of music festival size crowd or arena size crowd. Imagine if you're at a basketball game, so it's like 30 to 40,000 perhaps. Um, And, you're trying to get through that crowd and it's it's like being in a rock concert where you you come to total gridlock and you and you think you're not going to possibly be able to move more but somehow you manage to burrow in a little further and then you had to go up this sort of scaffolding and people were going right up the scaffolding and uh up to the you know the risers to kind of try to get up it was all very dangerous and then you get up to the upper terrace area now, this is just the west side. There's also an east side of the Capitol where the Oath Keepers were, where, um, you know, I think they did just let people in at one point on the east side. Oh,
0: right, let and them. I know they did at right. some places. That's what I was and, getting at is that there's so right. many entrances to this place. Like right, that's- and it was
1: just – it was massive. There was so much going on. And, and what you said is – you know, and I had a, a conservative activist who said, Jerry, do you ever report that there were many of us there – that were peacefully protesting. And I kind of said, yes, I do mention it here and there. I mean, it's, you know, let's face it, though, you know, the 1,000 people or 800 people who go into the Capitol or the 1,000 to, you know, 2,000 that were insurrecting are the ones who are going to, you know, essentially dominate the headlines. You know, that's just sort of, that's just the fact of the way it is. But I I don't know that I could call this an insurrection because, I did it first, but the way it's being applied to everybody that was there that day is wrong because if only one in 30 people are insurrecting, in other words, if you have 1,000 people who are the aggressive at the point, but then you have 30,000 that aren't, or 29,000 aren't, you know, it's not, it's not accurate to define an event by, uh, you know, it's, a small percentage of of what the small percentage of people are doing. Well, so what do what do ahead. you what do you call it? And this is actually brings up one of the most interesting conversations uh, about just shortly after January sixth, was Peter Gelderloos, a anarchist writer who lives in Spain, who is you know from from the United States, but but has written for you know Crime Think and it's going down. In an interview, he he touches on these points that you make, that Trump isn't necessarily competent, that calling this a coup is is absurd, you know, from, this is from an insur- insurrectionary anarchist uh, point of view. He goes on and he says, all right, everybody, I know this is tough to talk about because, you know, we're using terms that are near and dear to our heart, you know, like insurrection, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, and, and then he goes on to say, you can't really call this a coup. For an actual coup, there are all these points of power that, that Trump would have had to have his pulse on, whether it's the military or the press or uh, or, you know, uh, Congress itself. And, and essentially, Trump didn't have any of them under his, his control.
0: Right. That was the point I was going to make was just like, let's and I've made this on other podcasts. Let's say we go absolutely scorched earth and the people who showed up in the Senate kill Nancy Pelosi, kill even Mike Pence. We'll say they just kill everybody. Right. That what is the military suddenly just going to go, oh, okay, I guess you guys are in charge now. Like, you know, is the Pentagon, everybody else just going to fall in line because there are still right. Yeah. Yeah, so, there are still people in Congress saying we were that close to losing our democracy. No, right. you weren't. Like even if the worst things yeah. happened, that's not what would have happened. Like that's exactly <laughs> right. And that's and,
1: the that's the point that Gelderloos, you know, this anarchist makes that that you know Trump didn't have his his pulse on any of those points of power. You know, he didn't he didn't have that. Uh, so to call it a coup is disingenuous uh, and. And he says uh, – what's funny is that he pivots then into wokeism. He says, we do know what to call this. It was a white riot. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, right. Of course you know. it is. Yes, a white riot. Yes. No. Uh, <laughs> well I, but I do call, I do ahead, call but it the Capitol riot. I do call it
0: the Capitol riot. I do right. It call was it at the Capitol. There's no question. But no, I yeah. – but they they needed it to be about racism because then they could not talk about the valid concerns that Trump supporters have. That's that's what they needed to be about, and that's why I said that. Or ironically, even
1: invalid, or even the invalid concerns, that's fine too. If you just right. engage well, no, for sure. in some sort of discussion and say, "Well, this is why I think those concerns are invalid," but if you just filter it through the you know the prism of race, then you immediately just get to dismiss their, you know, concerns, even though their concerns for the most part are government overreach. I mean, a, a, a lot of what people, you know, people, the Southern Poverty Law Center said this was a uh, a push to, you know, further white supremacy and so forth. Well, uh, how do you say that if nobody's talking about white supremacy in that crowd that what i heard people talking about was government overreach some people were talking about antifa that and black lives matter being able to do this one sign that i saw said now we revolt um you know so 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 what were people's concerns you know big tech censorship all this stuff uh mandates government overreach you know white supremacy was so far like if you are from if you were there and you and, and you were doing an honest attempt to try to understand who are these people like if you came from another country or or another planet and we're trying to 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 figure out who are these people what do they want white supremacy would not even cross the radar because you would have to find these outliers and interpret their symbols the confederate flag for example as such and you know and those were outliers i never saw you know uh a a race and i looked for stuff like that i was looking for guns i was looking for uh racist imagery now we do know that there is a guy with you know the the hoodie that says camp auschwitz and so forth and and we know that these people exist but how representative are they you know of that mass populace
0: well, and here's another one. Imagine this, OK. Let's imagine that, say, in Portland or in Los Angeles, an unarmed antifa activist was gunned down by a police officer while trying to say, "Get into the state capitol." you know, Or an unarmed Black Lives Matter protester was gunned down trying to get into the mayor's office. It, how would that ever have been received? You know, it certainly would not have been received anything the way Ashley Babbitt was, you know. And again, I don't advocate for what Ashley Babbitt was trying to do. But the reality is, is that the the characterizations around Ashley in comparison to what would have happened if any kind of government agency ever just shot an unarmed protester trying to get into a federal building like that kind of gives you an idea of the scope of the chasm when it comes to how people look at this situation. You know, um, I'm not convinced that Ashley Babbitt was a threat to anybody. I think she was getting, you know, she was definitely going somewhere she shouldn't have been. But, you know, that brings me back to the comparisons, which is why I made the Hindsight is Always 2020 video, was that there was stuff that was done throughout the summer and fall um, of attacking federal buildings of, you know... uh, and, And was it the Capitol? No. But honestly... You know, one of the biggest indicators that it wasn't Antifa is that nothing was burned <laughs> You know, and very little destruction actually took place. Um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, but there are definitely people you know, like you, those people I was telling you about who destroyed um, or attacked the, the Democratic, the Antifa group that had attacked the Democratic headquarters. The flyer that they passed out literally had a White House and flames on it, you know. So it's right. not as though Antifa would not have done something like attacking a Capitol. So- well, see, that's,
1: that, that's, what's so remarkable is what people don't know uh, is that on the anniversary of Occupy wall street uh, there was a scheduled quote unquote white house siege that was being promoted on Twitter and getting very little traction. And it was from a group from Canada known as ad Busters, uh, I actually interviewed uh, Kale Lassen, who works with him, and he claims to have been part of uh, s- uh, some of the uh, big Occupy push in, uh, in, I believe, in New York and so forth. Their their organization uh, uh, s- s- says that they are part of that, and uh, you know, I, I just I don't know uh, what what the um, truth of certain claims of organization when it comes to Occupy Wall Street. But uh, in in any case, this was a group that uh, on the anniversary, I guess would have been the ninth year anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, uh, wanted to launch a White House siege. And there were these flyers going around and they weren't getting that much traction. And I even talked to people at the time when they were still... Uh, able, uh, willing to talk to me uh, anti-fascist activists and and they said well I don't know what this is going to be it might be occupy 2.0 occupy sounds so 2011 that you know there just wasn't it was disconnected from the on the, the sort of boots on the ground youth you know and uh, I showed up in Washington DC to check it out and it was a complete bust nobody really showed up um it, I, you know, I took some, took some video and, and, and so forth of the surroundings. And, uh, it, it, but there were all these flyers that went out that said, you know, White House siege, and then they kind of took the word siege out and said it was going to be an art festival. But the point is, is that in the imagination of, of, of radicalism, it, a siege of the Capitol was not far off from a, uh.
0: A, well, busted,
1: a busted up promotion of a siege of the White House that was promoted to go through September, October to election day.
0: Well, especially though, like, I mean, many of the anti activists and Black Lives Matter activists openly stated that if Trump won the election, that there would be more riots. Right. And that would be when I think you would see some kind of leftist attempt to try to organize and start you know, doing some serious destruction. So it's not like it wasn't within their mindset to say that they could do it. It's just that they kind of felt, okay, we we took a we took a W here, so, you know, let's let's take a moment and digest this. We you know, we're kind of winning here, so why should we push it that much further? Um, you know, but that, that's why I was getting it earlier, was just to say though, is like you gotta remember who these people are. Antifa activists are only not doing things of that scale. But for one thing I've never seen an Antifa activist do anything that was as grueling and dangerous as what went on in that tunnel fight. Like they're pretty good at hitting people who are not looking at them. They're good at hitting people that they outnumber about 10 to one or more. They're not really good at sustained actual grueling fighting. And you see that whenever they actually get confronted by an equal number of proud boys, they, they crumple like paper. Um, You know, so it it comes down to it it's it's not that they don't attack the capital because they support the government. <laughs> it is that they don't attack the capital because they don't have the fortitude or the resources, you know, um or or honestly just like the gumption to actually have the balls to pull something like that off. Or you know, the leadership. It, right, or the leadership. I mean that's I did a video once because every now and then uh, Antifa will start arguing with itself on Twitter, and they're hoping that they have you blocked. Like Antifa people will block you really quick, um, you know. And I got to watch an argument going on about what happened in Los Angeles. or no, I'm sorry, in Portland when the Proud Boys beat the crap out of them and chased them off. And it turned out that it was a a failure of communication that they they try to uh, use consensus model decision making and what they call anarchist principles. Um, you know, I actually, like I said earlier, I don't think consensus decision making is bad. I do think if you're going to have any kind of a, um, a confrontation with somebody, I would I would not be trying to have a consensus committee meeting every time we make military decisions. You know, but um, they were arguing about where they were going to go. That's that they were in Portland, hoping that um, the Proud Boys would attack them there. And they weren't then. And, and so the Proud Boys assembled over at that Kmart. And so then some of them say, well, hey, let's go confront them. We're supposed to confront them wherever they are. And then some people on whatever their communications systems were said, yeah, we're going. We're all going. Like started speaking for the Black bloc as a whole. And that led to the portion of them showing up at Kmart who did, who got the crap beat out of them. And the funny thing is, is that it still looked to me like they still outnumbered the Proud Boys that were present. But they weren't ready for for one thing, a group that's not afraid of them, um, a group that's prepared for them, and a group that's going to go ahead and take it to them. They do much better, you know, um, doing things like uh, attacking people who are by themselves like they did at the We Spa, you know, in mm-hmm. situations like that. And that's one of the other reasons why I kind of laugh at them. I'm like, you have no freaking clue. Like, I talk to Antifa people who compare themselves to the Viet Cong, and I'm like, you realize that y- you would never survive a day in the life of a Viet Cong soldier. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah. You know, and yeah. like you disobey orders, they shoot you in the Viet Cong. It's not a question of, well, my, my anarchist principles, you don't, you know, you're an authoritarian. No, you're dead like that. <laughs> there, there's yeah. no tolerance for that kind of crap, you know, among those people. It never, ever, the NVA, you know, would also shoot you, you know, I mean, I just, anyway, my, my point was to say that when it came back to, coming back to January 6th, I see that there was, it was a multi, like you said, there was multiple entrances, there's multiple things going on, there's multiple different kinds of people being there, and there are people who, and also they want to demonize everybody who was there, like actually, so the Gravel Institute, because I worked for Senator Mike Gravel, um, they put out a, a post saying that anybody that voted for Trump or was in any way involved with January 6th should not be allowed to be employed. So I literally picked up my phone and called Senator Mike Gravel and went, hey, this is what's being said in your name. And he said, you contact them immediately and tell them to take it down. Because it was ridiculous. You, you can't go that far. You know, it, 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 that's why uh, Crystal Ball, um, who does ri- did rising and now does breaking points, pointed out that we're creating a scenario where it's like, okay, so what are you gonna do with the Trumpers now? Do they get to live? Are they allowed to exist here? You know, and if they're not, then what? Like, you know, what are you gonna do? It's like we keep creating an environment. I'm not doing the best job of articulating it, but we're creating an environment where now we can't live together. So yeah. what's next? You know, and it's not gonna be pleasant. You know, that's and I, I think that, you know, that and then kind of segueing is that is to say that in the long run, for one thing, this has always been true to some extent about humans, but I'm seeing it now in a level I've never seen it before, which is if you were attacking the, uh, a federal building on January 6th, to one side, you're a rioter. To the other side, you're a freedom fighter. And they will twist any element of this, if you're a Black Lives Matter rioter or a Bl- or Antifa rioter, making those distinctions, then you're a freedom fighter in their eyes or you're a terrorist in the other eyes. They it always to work like that, which is why Kyle Rittenhouse is wrong for defending himself. He apparently, the only, I've argued with so many of these people, the only outcome of that scenario that they would have been comfortable with would be the mob beating him to death. And what was fresh in my mind right before that happened was the guy who got kicked in the head in Portland by uh, Marquis Love, ironic right. name, you know, for trying to drive his truck away, you know, right. and, they, and brutally beat him. And that's what was going through my head was like, God, if I was that kid, I'm not freaking letting that mom take me down because I know what's happening next. You know, I, I just but it, it doesn't matter that they attacked him first. He should have just died. And he's a murderer because he killed anybody in their group, and if and the, the other the other hypocrisies. So it's acceptable. Okay, so for example, the thing that just came out is everybody's whining about the judge saying that we can't call uh, the people he shot victims. The reason you can't is because currently there's an active investigation wherein a claim of self-defense is being made. So until or if Kyle Rittenhouse. Is is label, is actually proven to be a murderer? Then they're not victims; they're attackers. You know, nobody can accept that. But to them, they want, and they're totally fine with the idea that Kyle Rittenhouse's fight that he got into with a girl who had hit his sister should be admissible. Kyle Rittenhouse just being a kid talking crap about some looters and a cell phone conversation in his car should be admissible. You know, and everything, you know, that they, anything that could demonize him should be admissible. But what should never be admissible to those people is we're not allowed to talk about the fact that Joseph Rosenbaum raped five boys between the ages of nine and 11 years old and not just fondled, forced, forcibly sodomized and forced them to give him oral sex. This is not a good person you know, there's, and they still deny that that's true. I've had to like literally pull out the court documents. You know, we're not allowed to talk about that because that's not relevant to the trial. We're not allowed to talk about Anthony Huber having a history of domestic violence, including strangulation um, and false imprisonment, which is basically not allowing somebody to leave, you know, beating people up. And that's just, none of those things are allowed. And, And the reason why I'm saying this is that this should just be kind of like a a thing that two kids do to each other, you know, like they have, like maybe your siblings are arguing or whatever, you know, but we are adults and it's very clear that now, you know, it's one of the things that Yuri Bezmenov says about what happens to a nation that's been demoralized by Soviet like um, systems of demoralizing and destabilizing is that people, regardless of a large quantity of information will no longer be able to come to rational consensus and decisions that no amount of true information will matter anymore. And that really rung with me because that's exactly what it's like talking in the Twitter verse you're talking about. That's exactly what it's like on Facebook. And you yeah. can get people to back off a little bit, but the reality is, is that somebody has a vested interest in, you know, and getting us to fight each other and in a way that is dehumanizing you know, that's why when, you know, we talk about mob justice, like they say, they want to abolish the police and just have community justice. Well, they'd have killed Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, community justice to me. Well, the image that pops into my head is like, say, the lynching of a black man who may have looked at a white woman. You know, it's like the community cannot be trust- trusted to do enact community justice, you know, but they would have been just fine with, you know, people killing Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, but Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, it, you know the other side, you know, it, they, they also said cruel things that I think were above it. You know, some of the right-wingers have said some pretty terrible stuff. Like, I wouldn't be making memes about Anthony Huber dying. Like, they made, like, skater die memes, for example, that were a reference to an old skateboard video game. Things like that. You know, and I guess what I was just, you know, to cap off what I was getting at before I start rambling, would just be to say that we are now to the point where the polarization, the volleyball game, cheating is at a maximum level. And I hope that people who are left or right recognize that this is a threat to the fabric of society. It's not just about your Republican or your Democrat. It's about if we cannot even have semi-rational conversations wherein we talk to each other in good faith, the future of our society as a whole is in dire jeopardy. Because at that point, we stop being human beings and we start being animals.
1: And that's what you get in the mob. And that's, that's exactly what, what we've been seeing. And so as we look ahead, I can only hope that more conversations happen and uh, happen across more platforms so that people can understand uh, how their buttons are being pushed, how how they are being pushed essentially how the engagement how the algorithm is seeking that engagement we're getting some discussion about it when it comes to facebook but now look at twitter look at all of these uh, different platforms that uh, exploit outrage and get you to engage on content ultimately that is very simplistic and it demonizes your political adversaries
0: right no i agree with you wholeheartedly um and uh this has been a fantastic conversation, Jay Lee. And um, where can people check out your work?
1: Well, uh, I'm on a, taking a little downtime right now. And, and that's mainly because the scene has kind of gone a little cold uh, in L.A., which which is good. Uh, but on Twitter, at Jay Lee Quinn, in the media tab, you can see. There is a long history of what I have recorded over uh, the last year and change. And uh, also, I do still have uh, content up on publicreport.org. But actually, YouTube is a good place because that's where I do my podcast. So YouTube.com slash unblocked live. YouTube.com slash unblocked live. I call Unblocked Live the anti-polarization podcast.
0: Awesome. Well, I like that name for sure. Maybe I should come on and be a guest sometime, and we can do some anti-polarizing. Um,
1: <laughs> we can talk a little bit more. That would be great. Appreciate
0: yeah, that. for sure. We had a great talk today. Um, so, it, thank you guys for tuning into V Radio. If this is your first time checking me out, please check out my archives. Um, there'll be other podcasts like this one listed. I have briefer shows. I have shows that are just YouTube-like video-oriented, where I put together footage to kind of tell a story. So, for example, like my. Uh, documentary, uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse incident. Um, That's one of my longer form videos where I really get down to the timelines and trying to analyze what took place. Um, I do not expect nor would I want you to agree with everything I say. It's actually part of my story that, you know, what I want people to do is to be able to engage with people that maybe they don't agree with and be able to glean from, you know, their insight, the things that they do agree with. Um, that used to be something that we valued in this country and now we don't, um, you know, and that needs to change for the sake of the future of society. Uh, so once again, thank you for tuning in to V radio. And if you can consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal or subscribe star, you can find all of those links and the links to my social media at V dash or V hyphen radio.us. Thanks again, everybody.